I tell you who it was, and my family gets none that you do this. Kill me. Kill me. You can do this. Kill me. Kill me. Kill me. Hey. Hey, sweetheart. It's your papa. This is my voice, darling. This is what I sound like. Don't forget, okay? Your father and I are getting a divorce. Ne t'inquiète pas. Je suis là. Nothing's gonna change. We're still gonna see each other. Stop this paragraph please. right here, this is important because it states who you are gonna live with. And welcome to Directors Club Podcast, episode 69. I'm Jim Laskowski. Um, joining me today is someone I respect for his talent, his drive, his enthusiasm, and of course he's appeared on two of our most popular episodes in the past. He's a member of the Chicago Film Critics Association, contributes to WGN Radio, writes for a variety of media outlets. Once again, welcome back, Eric Childress. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming back. I'm super stoked. I'm very excited. Uh, we are minus one Patrick today. He's He's been in a, a state of transition. He's... Mm. Mm, uh, Transitioning his taste at all, or <laughs> you, you would hope so, I'm sure. Okay, well, but, there'll be less arguing on this podcast. I think so. Yeah, at least less than the last one. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, that 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 was quite memorable. Angry. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, he's moving and doesn't have his internet set up, uh, and just been working a lot at, and. Just kind of getting his life together for the next chapter. I'm very happy for him. He's 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 moved in with his uh, partner Regina, who's actually going to be contributing uh, along with Patrick via voicemail later in the hmm. show. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I don't think they agreed on one particular Spielberg film, so we'll <laughs> save that for later. So she might have good taste then. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll see. Um, Just giving you crap, Patrick. <laughs> he loves it. And, well, I think we're going to do just fine. But uh, mm-hmm. I will say I'm not as big on Latter-day Spielberg. Um, but I, there are definitely, I will, I will say that I'm sincerely passionate about two of his films, which I would you know, consider to be masterpieces, where I'm sure mm-hmm. Eric feels strongly about the majority <laughs> of them. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're we're getting into. I mean, I think when you compare probably any director's career, if you're gonna you know break them up into halves, mm-hmm. um, you know, the first half is usually stronger than the second half. I think that's you know probably true for a lot of directors. You could definitely make you know cases for Latter Day Scorsese and stuff like that. Woody um, Allen, but uh, yeah, Woody Allen for for certain. Uh, but, you know, it's very. I mean, Spielberg you know set the bar so high for himself in those early days that. It, it, it's it's almost impossible for the people who, especially you, really grew up with or sort of you know discovered their love, love their love of film around that time to really sort of wrap their heads around you know continuing to rank them and to rank anything of the latter day higher than some of the earlier stuff. Yeah, no that that makes complete sense. Um, but I 
Honestly, uh, I want to start out with some good news that can lead into a brief conversation regarding some sad news in the movie world. Um, I just confirmed a bonus episode interview with the one and only Stephen Tobolowsky. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, a.k.a. Needle Nose Ned from Groundhog Day. Basically, uh, the other day, hearing the news about one of my favorite comedy actors and directors passing away, um, it actually fueled me to contact Stephen. It, it actually motivated me, and I was like, i got to turn this day around. Um, and it would be so great to talk with Stephen about his career, about his upstart, up, upcoming Kickstarter campaign, that is, and, of course, what it was like working with the great Harold Ramis. Who left us way too soon this past week? And it's hard to know where to begin, because it it touches a lot of childhood memories for me, including ones associated with my own uh, late great father, because we grew up watching SCTV together, Mm -hmm. and, you know, he took me to Ghostbusters, pretty pretty sure it was opening weekend, Um, and what a career he had as a director, and... Him and I sound like I even just reviewed Groundhog Day earlier this month and talked about how it's become a classic. And even when I walked out of it as a kid, I just said to my dad, this is, you know, this could be like up there with maybe it could be in It's a Wonderful Life for my generation or something. Mm -hmm. Because I just had that strong response to it right out of the gate. And he just... Can, he had so much humanity in the midst of his comedy to where even something like Stewart Saves His Family, he just made it his own. And, like, we were so done with SNL characters at that point being turned into movies. And out comes that. And it was a genuine surprise in every way to where it was like, wow, this is actually really really sweet and not just you know slapsticky caricature kind of stuff that we got from like it's pat and all that stuff um i i don't know like there's so much to say about harold ramus as an influential comedy filmmaker and as a performer um where where would you like to start with that eric because i know Uh, he's impacted your life and yeah i mean it's you know, it's one of those things that you don't even necessarily realize the impact he's had on modern day comedy and the comedy of that time uh, until he's gone. Yeah. Really, I mean, and I think that's you know that's probably the tr- case of a lot of people, um, especially someone who gets taken so early, and you still expect stuff from them. You know, it's one thing you get someone you know in their 80s and 90s, and you're not really expecting them to produce anymore. But Harold Ramis, I'm sure, has still had a lot in him. Um, and uh, because we had seen him a couple times in, you know, in, in front of the camera um, over the last five, six years and whatnot, that we didn't really – I mean, th- it was a shock because we didn't really hear much about the last couple of years and the, the, the battles that he was going through. Yeah. Um, but you go back – I mean, everyone mentions the classic. Everyone, you know, that he, you know, he co-wrote Animal House, and then you get the Caddyshack and Vacation. Uh, yeah. But then, you know, some of the latter-day stuff. I mean, Groundhog Day is the one – Everyone sort of like the, likes to put the the pin in in that one, and like that's his that was like the peak of the Harold Ramis thing. But after Groundhog Day, he still had 
you know, the, the Ice Harvest, you know, which is a completely another direction for him. Yeah. That, that's a really underscored film. Stewart, I mean, didn't, didn't, no one went and saw it. No one went, certainly didn't go see Stewart Saves His Family. Because, um, like you said, probably it was right in the wake of, like, It's Pat and the Wayne's World films. Uh, so no one really needed, uh, no one felt they needed a Stewart Smalley movie, for God's sakes. And yet he delivered this really, really funny uh, and really kind of beautiful film about a dysfunctional family. Um, and, and, and another film that is really funny that re- I think fits in with the, uh, the, the structure and the classics uh, that uh, he gave us in the 80s is uh, Analyze This. Oh, yeah. Which I think is, is, I didn't hear a lot of people talk about that film. Uh, maybe because, you know, the sequel wasn't very good. Right. But, but the, the first one is a, a really, like, a really genuine, like, genuinely really well-structured comedy um, mm-hmm. with uh, that, that same level of emotional uh, attachment and really sort of fine-tuning those two characters that they weren't just caricatures and whatnot. And it was sort of <laughs> some, some probably people probably look at that as the, the beginning of the end of the De Niro we used to love because he started doing a lot of comedies and uh, doing a lot of wacky stuff after that movie. Uh, but that's that. I think that that belongs right up there with uh, some of some of the best stuff Her- uh, Ramis ever did. Yeah, I I agree. Actually, I mean it's it's something I should revisit again because it's been a long time and. I think walking out of it, uh, I remember saying, well, that's kind of like, what about Bob, only with the mafia? And I didn't mind that because it was funny. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's rare, especially at that point, for me to find Billy Crystal really funny. Right. And it was a really subtle performance, and he didn't ham it up. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're right. It was was genuinely surprising uh, to see De Niro pull off comedy so well. I mean, I still go back to... I mean, I know King of Comedy is a black comedy, right? but I still think he had great comedic timing um, you know, throughout his career. But it was, it was very refreshing, for sure. And I think mm-hmm. at this point, I will say... It's funny, because um, I've been thinking about watching movies that I know I've seen, but I don't remember too much about, because I'm yeah. getting to that age, unfortunately, where like... Right. Oh my god, I know I've seen this, but I don't remember things. And um I was gonna rewatch at some point Mumford just because <laughs> I'm going into therapy and seeing uh. different portrayals of therapy in movies is very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember if I like that movie very much, but what a cast in that. Um but I just remember seeing like this string and then eventually it sort of peaked within treatment of like Okay, here's therapy portrayed in either a really comedic way um, or in a really dramatic and serious way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Sopranos is one of the best portrayals of therapy in any uh, medium whatsoever. Okay. Uh, but I just, at the same time, I'm like, it is, it, it's interesting to note uh, the early path of Harold Ramis because how many times we watched those movies over and over and over as a kid. Um, and sort of his track record leading up to something like Groundhog Day. Uh, and even to multiplicity is not like a great movie, but Michael Keaton, you know, he's, he's another guy who I I'm dying to have a comeback. Like every time he, yeah, like the closest thing we got was Jackie Brown. But, um, at the same time, I'm, I remember thinking, yeah, uh, Harold Ramis just, he knows that blend of comedy and pathos really well. Um, and you can tell that, like, he, he 
he definitely had like a you know a religious sort of uh, I guess transformation uh, around the time, like maybe in the early '90s, that sort of led to the kind of philosophy that uh, is in is that is in a film like Groundhog Day, mm-hmm. where it, you know embracing uh, selflessness and you know trying to get past all. The selfishness that seemed to prevail in the world and society and everything, right. and uh, the the one memory I have is I believe it was the Chicago Film Critics Awards in 1996. Um, I'm pretty sure that was the year because that might have been uh, Larry Flint was nominated. Um, That's 96 Far- was Larry Flint. Yeah, yeah so. and Fargo won pretty much everything. Mm, right. Um, so yeah, he was uh, he he hosted that at the time, ah. and I I got to shake his hand very briefly. Um, I actually met him and of all people uh, Anna Klumsky. So oh, there that you was, go. That was a highlight. Um, he he just seems so down to earth and sweet, and he 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 didn't seem like the the kind of ego filled uh, you know Hollywood type no. at all. No, every, everyone everyone has that story. Everyone who yeah. ever met him, shook his hand, or knew him for any sort of brief moment, everyone has that same story of right. of what kind of guy he was. Uh, and you can see that even in like you look at his like performance in like Knocked Up. Oh yeah, you know, which is yeah. you know generally improvised basically. Um, and I, that's that's how I picture Harold Ramis, that that guy, that father. That's mm-hmm. how I, I how I imagine him. So yeah, and he, too, he too will soon. be. Yeah, he will be sorely missed, and mm-hmm. um, I'm not very happy to hear about the Ghostbusters three rumors going around. Well, that I, was going to happen. Yeah, I, I know. I'm just let it be. It's right. It's, it's done. Right. <sighs> All right. Well, I'm ready to move on to the what we watched huh. segment. Okay. that you've seen that's worth uh, bringing up? Uh, well, other than the Lego movie, no. <laughs> <laughs> the Lego movie is the only thing out in theaters right now that I would even stoop to recommend to anyone. I recommend it with every fiber that I can possibly muster uh, to, to talk about it. It is just a magical, wonderful, hilarious, fast-moving film that touched me in a way that I never would have expected. Hmm. Um, yeah, you haven't seen it yet? Not yet. Dude. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing it this week, I promise. It's, oddly enough, even with this horrible weather, it's spring break. 
So nope. I have a yeah. whole day to catch up on stuff. Knowing, knowing you and knowing, you know, your taste and your influences, uh, I guarantee you, you are going to at least be choked up by the end of, you know, this movie. Oh, boy. Yeah. I'd be, I'd actually be surprised if you didn't shed a tear. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, a couple of other podcasts I listen to sort of have been in more critical on it, and I'm surprised to some degree because I'm hearing nothing but praise right. outside of, like, a couple of people that I've listened to just say, uh, it's so AD, ADD, and I don't know, it just... They just, they just didn't yes. click with it for some reason. There's a reason that, the, the, I mean, you can't really talk about the movie without giving certain things away. Uh, but there, there are, there's an absolute method to the madness in the hmm. way that the film is created and the way the film plays out. And it has, it, it, you know, it has that sort of that mentality in its joke telling that it's going to have, you know, a, a, you know, a couple big jokes right at the forefront, and then there's like four or five in the background. That you are not going to see, you know, with the naked eye. Even it's, it's that kind of fast-moving stuff. It, 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 it's one of the fastest-moving animated films, uh, plot-wise, action-wise, that I have seen in some time, uh, and it, and it is magnificent. Wow, I, I'm just always in shock to hear like, oh my god. I mean, I, I was actually now that I think about it, I was. Very happy with Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs and Twenty One Jump Street. I I, wa- I walked into both of those not really expecting much, yeah. and it's the same writers, right? Yeah, same writers and directors. I like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I was not a fan of Twenty One Jump Street. That that movie is just the uh, all that that movie is. I'd say it's one big dick joke, but it is <laughs> like seven hundred big dick jokes. Um, and I, I've I've tried watching it again and again, and I like the, the you know what they're trying to do, uh, and some of the some of the stuff in the in the movie is funny. Uh, uh, but overall, it's, it's like every it seems like every other joke is has something to do with a dick. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just like, you got anything else, guys? You know, I mean, dick jokes well, are funny, but you know, every other joke, you know, gets old. Kevin Smith pretty much made a career out of dick jokes true but he spread them out a little bit <laughs> i mean 21 jump street is every joke is a, is a dick joke or you know hit, getting hit in the dick or something it is there's is probably the most penis jokes on record in the film hmm. ever well before the new one comes out i'll have to rewatch it and yeah. see i i remember being really surprised because at this point i am i think it was around bad boys 2 i'm like okay i'm done with the you know uh getting uh, you know, getting duped or you know doped up on some hallucinogen, right. ecstasy, whatever. Yeah. I'm just done with the montage of oh my god, the guy's high and going crazy. Yeah, and this one I thought was hysterical, and Channing Tatum showing some good physical chops and running around screaming and, and like <laughs> falling over drum sets. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. There was something that I was genuinely surprised and it could just be like, I'm a huge fan of Jonah Hill as a comedic performer. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I will say the way it, things wrap up, you talk about dick jokes. There's one. Yeah. yeah big one. Yeah. It, it, well, it ends with it. Uh, with the, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> Uh, yes, but how many times do we have to go to through, well, comedy is subjective. Right. You either so. laugh or you don't, and that's fine. Uh, yeah. but, but that's one of those rare cases where I can say, well, it's pretty much a big dick joke. 
<laughs> I mean, it's I mean, it's right there in front of you. There's no there's no getting around that. And if you like just dick jokes for an entire movie, then you'll probably laugh all the way through. Me, I was looking for something a little bit more after you know the 18th dick joke. Yeah, well, I do want to re- rewatch it too for good old uh, Brie Larson. I've yes. become quite the fan of her now. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Say. Yeah. One big dramatic performance, and, you know, she's everyone's darling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's all it takes. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Um, speaking of, I mean, I know you and I are probably the only two people on the planet that aren't big fans of uh, Spectacular Now. Right. Um, which was, I was very glad. <laughs> I was like, okay, at least there's somebody out there who thought it was nothing special. Nope. Um and oddly enough, the director is in Grand Rapids right now with Jesse Eisenberger and uh, Jason Siegel. Oh, Film- is he really? Yeah, they're filming, I guess it's a docudrama of some kind about David Foster Wallace. And I think uh, Siegel is playing David Foster Wallace. Okay. So it's weird because um, after moving to Grand Rapids, obviously I looked up some movies that were filmed around here. And a really bad one was uh, 30 Minutes or Less, also starring Eisenberg. Yes, that's and a bad movie. It is very bad. Um, but it's cool. They'd actually drive my my apartment. They'd throw out Grand Rapids references. And uh-huh. Aziz and Sari at one point says, There ain't no Indian people in Grand Rapids! And, <laughs> you know, there's, it's, there's some things to like about it, but I'm... God, I'm uh, the, the Danny McBride and the uh, what's his name? It might be T.J. Miller, or... Nick Nick Swartzen. Oh, Nick Swartzen. Oh, God, yeah. awful. Yeah. yeah, bad movie. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about a couple of things very briefly. Um, I brought this up in a couple e- a couple episodes recently, um, but since I'm talking with someone who I know is a fan, I really need to sing the praises of True Detective. Sure. Good lord. Yeah. Um, It's a thing. It was a show whose uh, creator and writer I was not too familiar with at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'd just just seen Jane Eyre. And uh, I I know he did something before. Oh, Sinobre? Sinobre. Yeah. Yeah. I need to see that. Um, But, you know, again... Cop dramas are a dime a dozen nowadays. Yep. And obviously I'm a fan of the cast and I have faith in HBO in general, mm-hmm. but nothing prepared me for where this goes and the sort of existentialist approach of it all. And, yeah. you know, at times, I, I bet, th- I, I think it's probably been a joke where Woody Harrelson actually calls McConaughey Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> but that was exactly what I was thinking. Um, you know, this sort of brooding nihilism. I just was like, damn, this is some of the darkest shit I've seen. Um, but what really works for me is kind of the intensity of just what the, the detectives are going through personally. Yeah. Um, because obviously there's a mystery going on. But often the episodes choose to focus on the detectives and their internal struggles and their clashing, how it's affecting their relationships, and all that is just as compelling as, you know, the procedural elements of the show. 
Um, and I also wasn't, I, I was not anticipating the almost lost like response with theories uh, right. and, yeah, and now podcasting. So there's just lots of people really getting into this show. Um, I just, I'm like, I'm so invested into it that we only have two episodes to go. And I'm so like, it's, it's nerve wracking to think, um, like, okay, how dark is this, this going to get? Because it's been incredibly dark. Um, but also just, like, I hope they don't fuck this up. I just... <laughs> I don't think they will. Because no. pretty much it's been consistently great. Right. Um, but it's also something that fills you with a lot of dread. <laughs> At the same time. Like, dread and excitement for the next episode. And... Um, it's one of the best looking shows I've seen, and uh, it's similar to uh, Top of the Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's actually the same cinematographer as Top of the Lake, and uh, that's a show that I really clicked with as well. Um, but I, I think this is yeah. way better. Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I, I kind of gave up on Top of the Lake about halfway through it. I felt like it was, I don't know, I just felt like it kind of spinning its wheels after a while a just it's it, it stopped it stopped engaging me um uh, but true detective hasn't no. <laughs> and and true detective i mean all the things you mentioned are absolutely true and you, you know you talk about cop shows that are a dime a dozen uh th- this is a show that you can you can point to certain aspects of it and all of them succeed you talked to you know about the, the look of the of the piece you know it's a very visual show and i mean it, it has that sort of that that same sort of you know, cinematic quality that HBO has like brought to like Game of Thrones mm-hmm. and stuff. So I mean, it feel so it has a cinematic quality to it. You have the two performances, which are just extraordinary from McConaughey and Harrelson, which would be nothing if the writing of the characters was not as strong as yeah. it is. And so, the, so the, the, those two elements work so great. And you have all this stuff going for you. And like you said, there's there's at the core there's a really intense mystery going on, and the, the way the thing is structured between the past and the present. Um, or the, you know the, the near present at least, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean the, the the theories that are going on, and you, I mean I don't even want to read the theories. I don't want to yeah, hear the theories. I don't, I don't. You know, I mean it's two episodes left. It's we, you know, it's one thing if, you know to have like Lost and you have three seasons to go and you can sort of you know like speculate and be that guy, but you got two episodes to go. Just let it be. Yeah. Let it let it work. You know, I mean it's like what you're, you're like. I think. The more theories you come up with, the more you're setting yourself up for it to mm-hmm. fail for you. You know, I mean, because if it doesn't live up to the, the grandiose theories that you come up with, is it, you know, does it succeed for you? Uh, so I think just let it work and see, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned the sense of dread that the show has. You, you don't feel like things are going to work out great no for these guys, you know, as, as at least one of them, you know, we're not sure which one. Uh, but maybe maybe both of them. Who knows? Um, and their family, you know, Woody's family, you know, in particular. Um, you know, the, the the ideas of McConaughey, who you know clearly went into some sort of existential religion, you know, anti-religious funk after his daughter died or went missing. Mm-hmm. You know, as you know, I seem to think is what we're heading towards that he yeah. he sees something you know in that uh, you know in in this case that you know might speculate you know what happened to his daughter. Um, so you got that going for it. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just I mean, you you really don't feel great 
after <laughs> watch an episode. I mean, you feel you feel you know enthusiastic that you just watched something of such quality, but you really you know I don't want to say you want to take a shower afterwards, but you do. You just kind of just feel crappy about the world that you live in, and that you know that something you know things like this you know probably do exist in some places, whether the extremes of the the crimes that are going on. Um, yeah. you, just, you just know that you know the things just aren't getting that the the world is just not the way it's it should be, um, and these guys are right in the in in the middle of it. So, whether it's yeah. a good thing or a bad thing, this is the first show. I mean, as much as I, you know, try to avoid the news sometimes, this is the first show that actually has made me think. Well, if I don't have kids, that's okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, obviously McConaughey talks about that early on, but yeah, if if this kind of shit is going on. Uh, and also, you know who surprised me is, uh, I mean, I've always liked him, but uh, Shay Wiggum shows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Another guy who's just, when he pops up in something, thumbs up. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy, happy to see him. Yeah, I'm always happy to see Shay Wiggum. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just wonder if he's going to play a bigger part. Later on, um, we'll have to wait not, and see. I don't think so. Yeah, I know that's my my theory. I mean, clearly there's something going on with the other past preacher, pastor guy. Yeah. Um, but uh, even even that isn't you know because we know that he's dead already by the time mm, we're mm-hmm. in the yeah. present. So um, that's not a spoiler. That's something we know about. Uh, so yeah, I I can't wait. Me I can't wait to neither. See how it all plays out. And if you're just about to start watching it. I suggest, because especially after watching the last episode, there's a lot of emphasis on the color yellow. Mm, the yellow Just, thing. Yeah, yeah. I noticed a few scenes in particular. I was like, hmm, they're really highlighting that in almost like a Soderbergh kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's shot beautifully. It's it's reminds me of Fincher yeah. um, at times, and it's just graceful. I just, I mean, even. God, there's there's not more that can be said about that six minute long take. Well, that's that's you know, that's a masterstroke of the director yeah. right there. I think that you know Carrie uh, Fukunaga has really done a, just a masterful job of putting this you know keeping this thing you know not letting it fall off the rails. Um, I mean, I, I don't think it's a, a perfect show. There, there, I've had some issues in the last couple episodes, uh, particularly one number six when you get to sort of you know the reason behind the rift that we've keep hearing about between uh, you know the two I, I wish they had come up with something a little more creative than what they did because that's that's, yeah. that's that's like the most obvious thing that that's true between the two so that that bothered me although the fight afterwards is pretty kick-ass <laughs> uh, and then and then in episode number five when things kind of shift towards the present and we start to get the sense of why that the two guys are being interrogated. It really shed a light to me of just how dumb the two new detectives are. Yeah, because I don't. Because <laughs> their theory, I didn't like. When, when they said it, when they finally said it out loud, they've been hinting at it for five episodes. But when they finally said it out loud, I'm just like, I didn't buy it for a second. I'm like, you're idiots. Yeah, you're a, you're absolutely you're idiots, and you you are not doing your job. That's true, and you do have a visceral reaction to that because, God, uh, Homeland, Ugh. that that finally got to me by by the I guess it's during the third season this past season. Uh, me, and my roommate, we just like yeah. no, can't do it anymore. <laughs> Homeland, I lost interest. I've somehow made it through season two. 
Yeah. And after the first episode of season three, I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. You know, I hope- think at one point a judge actually says to her, what are you smoking? I was just like, yes. what? Yeah. Yeah. Who, that, yeah. That, that whole first, that? Yeah. That's the, Homeland to me. You know, Homeland is like, well, House of Cards to me is like the new Homeland. Hmm. It's like it's like the show that everyone kind of like jumps on the bandwagon really early, and they think this is the greatest thing to ever be on television. And then you know, and well, you know, if you sit back and watch it, you go, yeah, this is kind of entertaining, but it's not it, it's not great by any stretch. Right. Uh, and then finally, by like the second season, people start to to come around to realizing that like, eh, this isn't as good as we thought it was. Right. Yeah. It's no Breaking Bad or no. Sopranos. No. Right, but man, again, True Detective—it's like a movie every week, and yes. thank God because it's been other than apparently the Lego Movie, it's been a uh, pretty sad winter. Well, start out. expect that. Yeah, yeah, of course. There's really, you know, there's, there haven't been a lot of disappointments so far this year. <laughs> there's nothing, you know. Although, I mean, I'll, I'll well, I, I'm not going to say which one. There's, there's one. There's a movie that I've seen. That I absolutely hate, and I oh, think boy. everyone else is going to love. So hmm. I, maybe it's just me being me, but uh, yeah, I'm not going to say what it is. You know You'll what I tend to know what it is in a few weeks. Okay, cool. You know what I tend to do every January? Mm-hmm. I rewatch Zero Effect because <laughs> that's a good. That's good. <laughs> I just remember, like, God, that was like. 98 or something mm-hmm. and seeing that in January I'm like holy shit I can't believe a movie this good this well written and it was a debut too of all things well I go back to, to the 1993 when you talk about Groundhog Day which opened you know first week of February oh yeah a few weeks before yeah. that matinee opened <laughs> wow so, so you talk about being spoiled I mean where that's 20, yeah. 20 years ago but uh, yeah I mean I, I think I haven't really noticed but, well, one, I haven't noticed how bad things are, mainly because January they didn't screen half the movies for critics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't bother to catch up on Hercules or uh, Paranormal Activity and you know a couple of these other ones. Uh, then you get into February, and then Lego Movie hits, and you're like, oh, my God. And that's, like, that's good enough to carry you through the entire month of February. And in the, mean, in the meantime, like you said, there's True Detective is on, and uh, the third season of Sherlock was on, and which is, that's, I mean, that's three movies right there. I need to see uh, that. Oh, you absolutely do. I've heard nothing but good things. Yeah, it's fantastic. So really quick, I also need to talk a little bit about this movie from 1985. Uh, So I don't don't know if I've mentioned this to you before. Um, I recently announced on the show that I'm going back to the year 1985 to either revisit or experience films I've never seen before. Because that was the year I fell in love with movies. Okay. Um, and so just like this little project to do on and off, and I'm not like, you know, taking it too seriously. But um, I came across this movie uh, thanks to, of all people, Miranda July. She wrote about it um, in an article about movies that really impacted her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a movie called Smooth Talk. Have you seen this? This is uh, Laura Dern? Yeah. Yes, and uh, Treat Williams, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I've seen the movie, and I read the short story that it's based on. Oh, very good. Yes. 
I. Thank, was, hey, thank you for choosing one I had seen. I was, <laughs> I was sitting there and I'm like, oh, which which film is he gonna say that I haven't seen? I'm gonna embarrass myself well, with. But no, the, thank you. This actually all all started too with the uh, when I, I talked about the Son of Bonus episode, but the movie Trouble in Mind. Did have you seen that? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> no, that one I have still caught up with. I'm not a big Alan Rudolph guy in general, but holy crap, that movie was. Something. Yeah, that's that's the one that people. That's one of the ones that people like with Alan Rudolph. Really like with Alan Rudolph. Yeah. I'm I'm not a huge fan of his either. Mm-mm. So I obviously I'm a huge fan of Laura Dern ever since seeing Rambling Rose at the age of twelve. Mm-hmm. And if you're a twelve year old that has no idea what a female orgasm sounds like, just rent Rambling Rose. Yep. Um, so I thought she was phenomenal in that, and then of course recently Enlightened came around, and I'm sort of smitten all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, I came across uh, this movie because Miranda July mentioned it, and whereas kind of you know I looked it up and just saw the basic plot line on IMDb for the first hour or so, I thought, damn, this is actually a really good portrayal of female adolescence. And, you know, the the transformation that a teenager goes through once attraction starts getting in the picture. Uh, You know, they're hanging out in the mall. It's, you know, pretty light. um, But it's got a really good uh, central conflict with um, the mother, played by Mary Kay Place. That stuff is very realistic and very relatable. Um, But Dern kind of does this tricky thing. Where at times she looks like she's 18, and at other times she looks like she's 13 almost. Very true. Yeah, and but the thing that carries it for me is her vulnerability. Like there's, and she doesn't resort to always externalizing it like a lot of actors might be tempted to do. Just like put it all out there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on with body language, um, but the reason why it's kind of a tough film to elaborate on is because the final act yeah um and it's unlike anything i can think of offhand in regards to um teenagers and you know the the conflicting emotions i had uh but at the same time i thought was incredibly refreshing for a filmmaker to you know take that take that route and really handle it well um, obviously, what happens is troubling, mm-hmm. but the way it's handled um, with her reaction and the very final moment, um, I was really moved by it. So it was just like a, a, an out-of-left-field experience for me. Um, and I know the, the, the short story is by uh, Joyce Carol Oates, and it's directed by a woman I wasn't too familiar with named Joyce Chopra. I believe. Um, so, yeah, this is actually one of the better discoveries I've had in a while, both as uh, a Laura Dern fan and for, like I said, the audacity of where the story goes and how it made me feel. Yeah, well, the, the, the short story that it's based on is actually just that third act. Ooh. Yeah, it's all, hmm. everything that, that, that leads up to it is the invention of the, the, the filmmakers and the, the screenwriters. Um, so basically, I mean, the short story is that confrontation between the the older guy trying to lure the younger uh, woman out of her house, and yeah. what. Um, and if I, I, it's been a you know, long time since I've seen the movie and or read the story. Um, I don't remember there being 
sort of an aftermath. Like we just sort of know, we sort of know, uh, troubling, you know, know what happens, you know, once, you know, things go down. Right. Um, funny enough, I remember, if you remember, I don't know, uh, did you see the remake of Fright Night? Yeah. Okay. I, Smooth Talk is a film that I thought of during Fright Night because <laughs> there's that one scene where Colin Farrell as the vampire is standing there at the back door talking to Charlie, yeah. basically trying to get him to come out. And it, it really <laughs> reminded me a lot of Smooth Talk. Wow. I wow, I hadn't thought of that at all. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was actually a decent remake. I, it's a good remake. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but this movie, yeah, I... I, again, like, you're watching it and you're kind of going, well, I've seen this kind of stuff before. Sure, it's a little dated because it's from 85. Yeah. But, you know, if you really want to see some top-notch acting and genuinely be surprised, not, I mean, you kind of see where it's going to go, but just the reaction that she has, I think, is it's worth seeing just for where this thing goes in the final act and um it it there is a little ambiguity to it i think <laughs> yeah no i mean the, the 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 short story had that ambiguity too even though everyone comes to the same conclusion yeah um yeah and if you i i, I go back i think roger ebert might have given that movie four stars i, I know think was, he did. I, yeah. I know it was a film that he certainly highlighted around that time and uh it and and if you you think you like Laura Dern now? Wait until you see the Ebert documentary, Life oh, Itself. Boy. There's a she. She doesn't appear in it, uh, but her her presence is felt. Hmm. I'll just I'll just say that. Nice. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. She did a really good interview on a podcast, uh, WTF, with Mark Marin, and uh-huh. you know, just hearing her stories of you know Diane Ladd and Bruce Dern. Are, yeah. are, it's worth hearing for that. She's she's great. Yeah. She's so cool. Um, so, yeah, that was from my 1985 project um, <laughs> that I'm enjoying quite quite much. Yeah, from Smooth Talk to Jurassic Park. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, so I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to do this. <laughs> Let's uh, talk about one of the greatest... Filmmakers of all time. Indisputable. If you dispute that, you're stupid. Just saying. Mm. Steven Spielberg, a filmmaker who's made some great movies. Many blockbusters like Jurassic Park, Jaws, and of course E.T. Sharks, close encounters with aliens and bad guys like Nazis. Boy, I hate those guys and snakes. Munich is so great, but you all ready. Surpassed 
So stop saying that he's not cool. Spielberg, go, I love you. It's it's rare for any director come out with the kind of masterpieces that he did early on. Right. Um, Jaws, Close Encounters, E.T., all perfect movies, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're moving on, but at the same time, why don't we start with a quick little introduction to you know what Spielberg means to you, what your earliest experience was with him, and why he's... Is he your favorite director? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes, he absolutely is. Um, and it, it, goes, it goes back to E.T., I mean, sure. that was E.T., the summer of 82, seven years old. I'd already discovered, I was already into the, the whole movie thing uh, by then, uh, your Star Wars and, you know, stuff that, you know, I was just getting, you know, cable. 82 was the first year we had cable with, uh, across the street, first VCR on the block. Uh, we yes. got ours sometime, I think, 83, we got our first VCR. But anyway, um, yeah, summer of 82, E.T., and it was the, it was the first movie where I discovered that, what a movie can do to you you know it wasn't just about you know enjoying it or seeing things cool that you couldn't see anywhere else um that but it was a movie that made me cry Mm -hmm. and like how did that how did it do that how did it make me cry how did i you know you leave the theater and you got tears running down your your cheeks and you you come to the realization just like well there is no elliot there is no et these are fake people, and they, in less than two hours, someone managed to invoke an emotion out of you that you really had not had unless, you know, something really bad had happened to you. You know, here is just, you know, the, the idea that, you know, E.T. was leaving, you know, leaving, you know, his, his best friend, essentially, was leaving and whatnot. And it, it's, to have that sort of reaction as a seven-year-old, it, it changes you. You know, you start you start looking for those rea- uh, those reactions, and uh, and then you go back and you see ET a second time, and you have the reaction all over again. Yeah. You know what's going to happen. You know what's coming. I was at just this uh, not a few months ago. I went to a uh, a concert. Uh, John Williams was in town, and he conducted uh, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and I went to that. Damn. And yeah, <laughs> and uh, he's playing music from you know not just Spielberg films, but through all throughout his career. It's a wonderful mix, and he got to uh, E.T. and he played basically the last whole section of the E.T. score from uh, them getting on the bicycles with E.T. up until uh, E.T. leaving. And I'm sitting there in the theater with tears rolling down my cheeks. Just, just sense, hearing the sen- score. Just hearing the score. Sense hmm. memory of I know every single beat. Uh, where the music connects to the images from the film, and when he gets to that that moment where I know that the ship is landing, I'm 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 seven years old, all over again. I know that ET is going to be leaving, uh, and so, so you have the reaction, and then and then does the ET you know as uh, you know people talk about you know when you have that you realize what film can do, you start going back and you start looking for other you know you know ways to sort of uh, expand upon what you had just seen. So the ET led me to, you know, I'm like, wait, he did another movie about spaceships, Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. So there's Close Encounters. I already seen Jaws, and this scared the hell out of me, obviously. But even then you start, you know, connecting the dots, and you know, and you know, you saw, I know, I'd seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you know, Jaws, and now Close Encounters, 
1941 was always on cable at the time. <laughs> um, and it just, yeah, I mean, it began a love affair with not just Spielberg, but with the movies in general that has lasted me all throughout my entire life. So, you know, even even if it's just as an, an honorary, honorary thing that, you know, Spielberg is the guy and I always have a place in my heart for him, um, I, I think throughout his career, more often than not, he has, you know, outshined, you know, a lot of people that in, in his field. I mean, I, you know, and even with a lot of directors that I love and respect, um, Spielberg gets it right more often than not, in my opinion. I wonder if age seven is the magic year, because I was seven when I saw Back to the Future. There you go. And I wanted to, I wanted to hang out with Marty and Doc Brown and travel in time. And yeah, uh, it it was it was the first movie I remember saying when it was over. I can't wait to see that again. And you know, it it's weird because like maybe I was too young and kind of overly sensitive, but like ET. When I saw it, it actually scared me more than made me... Oh, yeah, everyone has that reaction, too. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, obviously, when I saw it years later, I I fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, it's... Man, like, seeing Back to the Future, obviously, seeing Spielberg's name in the credits, like, yeah, there's, like, this sort of six degrees of separation, and you start... uh, retracing steps of a director's career. Mm -hmm. Um... And strangely enough, at the time, uh, like, my dad, obviously, at the age of seven, didn't show me used cars, but <laughs> learning later on that's his favorite comedy of all time, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense why he was so excited to see it opening night with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I I will go on record as saying, as you know, especially after revisiting on Blu-ray stuff like Jaws, and Close Encounters, and kind of just having these experiences play themselves out in a new format with a nice TV, and uh, sometimes I listen through headphones because I live in an apartment building, but it's still, you can hear the surround sound beautifully. Um, That, yes, uh, maybe in the past, like I've said, "Uh, maybe, I think Spielberg's a little overrated, you know, who knows, maybe because I went to Columbia College for couple semesters right uh, i drank the water or something mm-hmm. um but i honestly feel that he's in my top 10 maybe top 15 of all time yeah and, it doesn't have to be i mean if you know he's my favorite director he doesn't have to be everyone's favorite director oh, but, sure, to, but, but to not acknowledge his contributions to film even yeah. you know even you know when he in some of the spottier parts of his career that people like to to, to trounce upon uh, they're, they're, well, right exactly that exactly that period right there um to, to not recognize him as just a pure craftsman sure. like you might not always like the end result you might not like the sentimentality you might not like you know sometimes you know that you might feel he's heavy hand yeah i mean i i don't i don't i don't get that you know i i think that you know it's almost like you know that that whole thing that like people grow up you know, and there was that that period when you know Spielberg, you know, was doing, uh, you know, he did Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, uh, always, you know, in the span, and all of a sudden, and then he does Hook. He goes back to the fantasy thing. You know, he did Last Crusade too, but he goes back to the fantasy thing. And I remember hearing Siskel and Ebert talk about how they were they were just like, I'm afraid Spielberg has finally, gro- you know, grown up. 
<laughs> you know, that he has has lost his magic touch with, yeah. you know, that, that early part. And then two years later, what does he do? Jurassic Park. Right. You know, which is, you know, pretty pretty universally loved as, if nothing else, just a pure exercise in just fun and, you know, reinventing the wheel in some in some respects with the technology. Oh, um, yeah. And just and it was, it was a reminder of just how skillful a filmmaker is. And he doesn't get he often doesn't get a lot of credit. And I know he's you know, he, he doesn't write that often, but he gets pretty tremendous screenplays from people there's there's a real mm-hmm. literacy in a lot of uh his screenplays i mean look at some of the recent i mean look at lincoln from last year <laughs> and how how you know re- amazing that screenplay is we're going to talk about a, uh, a couple other films here uh but there, there's real depth in a lot of the things that are being said and talked about and and clearly you know you know we could spend three hours alone just talking about the the themes that spielberg has explored all through the years and we're probably touch upon a few of them just by accident talking about a couple of the films that we're going to talk about today um but that they're always there and that it's one of the things you know when people study stuff in you know you know school like columbia and you talk about you know great artists you know exploring the same themes over and over again it's, it seems that like spielberg has that because you know that because that's the name you know spielberg you know that he sometimes he doesn't get the sort of the past that a, a lot of other filmmakers do when they explore the same work, mm-hmm. you know, when, when, you know, Scorsese or, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson explores a variation on something. Um, and this is not to degrade either of them, obviously, but they sometimes they, they can be given a pass, you know, it's like, Oh, look how interesting he did it this time. Well, he did it before he did it with Goodfellas, he did it with casino and now Wolf of wall street, you know, but people overlook that. Um, yeah, the Spielberg's got that, that sort of that, that, that aura, about him because he's the most successful pretty much mm-hmm. of all time and because you know he's been so great for so long and whatnot that he, it's a, it's a, it's an easy target to look at and to immediately put put not just put your blinders on but put your sort of your caution flag up for just like okay what are you going to do f- to me now Spielberg and then when it's really good they're, sometimes they're not even willing to admit just just how good it is and just how expertly crafted it is I mean there there's stuff in all of his movies that, you know, screenplay be damned, story be damned, sentimentality be damned, just the way he moves the camera yeah. is tremendous. And I'm noticing that more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's the beauty of rewatching, and obviously years go by, you change, and you're able to focus on different aspects of a movie since you know the story. Yes. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, like... When I first saw Jaws, and, you know, way back when I was just focused on this is a terrifying movie, (laughs) and, yeah, I mean, there are images that stick with me today, but watching it now, I can tell the craftsmanship, the, the, the technical aspects that make that movie seem just graceful in how yes. it's put together. And that's that's something like, okay, you know, yeah, maybe I, much like we go through phases, um, maybe I went through my, like, well, you know, I'd rather focus on Godard and Bergman right now and, yeah. you know, forget Spielberg. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's overrated and, you know, right. Hook and blah, 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 blah. Right. And, you know, now that, you know, I, I have this podcast and now that I'm going back and watching movies from my childhood, I'm realizing, yes, part of it is nostalgia. Part of it is, like, mental time travel 
going back to when I experienced that and reliving some of those same emotions. But you're right. There's no denying the fact that even in Latter-day Spielberg's, there's all, always an action sequence or something <laughs> that blows me away. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, I will say, like, kind of the kind of the cutoff point, um, we, we briefly brought up uh, Jurassic Park, and then um, after that, I will say I wasn't big on Lost World, Amistad, just either, I mean, I didn't get a chance to rewatch either of those mm-hmm. to see if I had a different feeling about them now, but yeah. I remember not being too big on them. Uh Whereas, yeah, that's yeah, that's not yeah. I mean, Lost World is it's 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 an inferior sequel it is. to Jurassic Park. There's there's but there's there's good stuff in it. Like you're you're saying, mm-hmm. there's the stuff you can find in it that is makes it worthy watching. Like Amistad, again, not not his greatest dramatic achievement, but there are absolute there are stunning sequences with the slaves um, on the ship, and uh, even even Anthony Hopkins his courtroom address. I remember being really sort of captivated. Uh, by hit, hit the, not just the performance, but what he was saying. Um, yeah, I mean Morgan Freeman, Matthew McConaughey—they're sure. kind of uh, lost in that in that film. It's it's not you know it, it's not his greatest achievement, but I think there there's stuff in there worth watching. And I think when people when when he doesn't achieve a sort of universal greatness, it's a lot easier <laughs> for people to you know put the hammer down on that. Yeah, I, I can understand that. It, it, it's just. You know whether it's nitpicking or if it's just like, oh well, you know, this isn't as good as what he did before. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's unfair. It's unfair to the movie and to the director. Um, but it's 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 definitely interesting because you know after, well, I mean, I still say saving the first twenty minutes of Saving Private Ryan is amongst the best work that Spielberg's ever done, mm-hmm. um, and I've grown to actually like that movie more. As time has gone on, yeah. Um, even with the bookends, I don't mind it. I'm I'm willing to overlook that. Uh, but something happened with his next uh, foray into science fiction. Um, we'll touch upon AI a little bit later on, but I'm sure it's, mm-hmm. it can come up in the midst of our review here officially sure. of Minority Report. Yes. Um, I think one of the most brilliant parts of it is how it deals with the sort of philo- uh, philosophical and moral debate surrounding its premise in preventing crimes before they occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing I considered this time around is that it kind of evokes that Big Brother Patriot Act idea that seems more relevant today, mm-hmm. um, and the emphasis on sight. Uh, you know, we got the future of Google Glass coming. Uh, right. <laughs> um so, but it's also about the kind of blurred lines between, uh, you know, passion and violence and the need to um, just, you know, be a part of the uh, legal process and make sure you get the bad guy before anything bad happens at all. Right. Um, but it's it's an interesting, um, like, just the crazy commercialism going on in like when he visits the mall and stuff but mm-hmm. he's continuously being tracked by the government law enforcement retail stores everything yes. so i love all that stuff but i, I do want to go in 
to kind of a debate because mm-hmm. it's it's almost impossible not to bring up the last 20 minutes. And right. it derives from the mind of a writer that I love, Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because along with AI, it's more of a collaborative process. Because with AI, you had Kubrick's blueprints, and here you have Philip K. Dick's story to work off of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... <laughs> I don't want to say it conflicts with Spielberg's sensibilities as a filmmaker at times, but there is a little bit of a disconnect with the way both of the movies end, actually. I still love Minority Report. There's, there's things about it that blow me away to this day. Um, and, you know, obviously he was fearless too in saying okay i'm i'm going to go i'm going to go really dark here uh the way the film opens kind of the stuff with uh peter stormare which it's kind of goofy but dark at the same time mm-hmm. um and sometimes that gels really well sometimes it kind of seems off to me um but i'm at the same time i just don't i don't jive with spielberg's endings with Minority Report and AI because they don't seem to fit. Like, the last 20 minutes of Minority Report do, are nothing like the book, which is fine. I'm not saying they have to be completely identical, but uh, Philip K. Dick, he is more cynical, and he yes. t- you know decides to let pre-crime go on. Um, where here it, it turns into more like a noir um, and just like, okay, the bad guy is going to come up and, and everybody lives happily ever after. First time I saw it, didn't have a problem with it. This time it kind of bugged me a little bit more. Um, but everything else I, I think is great. I think Samantha Morton is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the cinematography, there's some really creepy stuff involving like the little spiders and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean... Again, I still love Minority Report, but I'm not as into the final act as I once was. Yeah, we you know we talked about you know the you know the, everyone you know the, the phases of Spielberg and with AI and Minority Report that the criticism with Spielberg was and this extends to War of the Worlds too um, is that he goes for the, the 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 easy happy ending in a way um, yeah even even though AI, calling AI, the end of AI a happy ending is a complete misnomer that's mm-hmm. that's that's crazy. Um, and yeah, it's like Minority Report AI. They say like, oh well, if you would have ended the movie twenty minutes long earlier, it would have been a masterpiece, you know. And with AI, I, I clearly I don't agree with with that. I mean, it would have. I mean, it would have been like the darkest ending ever if he ended it twenty minutes <laughs> earlier. Earlier, well, um, according to Spielberg, he actually said that the, the last twenty minutes was from Kubrick. Yes, he did. Yeah. Right, and, but but of course, then everyone everyone always ignores that. By right. the way, everyone always ignores that. They're like, oh, Spielberg, you know, he had to do the thing with his mother and whatnot. I'm just like, well, you know, if you were listening, dummy, you would have heard <laughs> that's, that that comes from Kubrick. And the fact is, is that it's not the happiest of endings because no. all humans are gone. Right. <laughs> all humans are gone at the end of that movie. And and then you get the Minority Report, and it brings up the, the sort of the interesting debate that people, um, br- you know, br- bring up with that, and that the idea is that, that was sort of, you know, Spielberg's Brazil ending um, in mm. that the last 20 minutes are basically still in his head. That yeah. is, once he goes down into 
uh, the chamber after he gets caught, that everything that plays out afterwards, because you know they they tell you a couple times in the movie that um, you, the the prisoners are all being given like you know happy thoughts. All and your whatnot. dreams come true. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, so right then, like the, you have that last shot of Cruz with the the halo around him, and it kind of goes brighter while he's in the darkness and then right there the last 20 minutes start and everything ends up happy for everyone now he you know the the he could have gone and given you the definitive brazil ending where you you know you cut back to Cruz being there but you know spielberg you know he's 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 an optimist he's a hopeful guy um and there there's you know there's kind of an you know an irony in the idea that people would you know be optimistic in that in in Spielberg's pessimism, you know that they would actually invent the idea that it, it, it that that maybe it is, you know, all just in his head, and that would satisfy them, as a, you know, in a more cynical way than Spielberg trying to give you hope that you know maybe you know things do work out in the end, you know, is, which I don't necessarily have a problem with, you know, I you know I I like. You know, I, I hope that we don't. That Spielberg never definitively says one way or the other. Uh, maybe he has, and I haven't heard it. Uh, but it's it's nice to think that those are two options that are available. And it's a movie, so you know, think of it as you want. But don't you know? I don't think you know the last twenty minutes. You know, kills the movie that much. I mean, it it, it plays oh, no. out like it plays out like a noir mystery. Is that you yeah. have the, the 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 villain is unmasked, and then you know the, the, there's a second unmasking. Uh, and then, you know, everyone gets their just desserts in the end. I think I just get set up basically to, you know, it's like I'm adapting to this one movie here. And then I'm not saying like the last 20 minutes is this gigantic tonal shift. But I feel like the ideas aren't as prevalent because like for, for, the, for a lot of it, it's like, you know, there's just so many things going on. And obviously some people can harp upon like they do with Inception, about exposition. Like, oh, Colin right. Farrell's always explaining everything, blah, 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 blah. But to me, the stuff they're explaining is actually interesting. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of rare. I mean, I, I, it's, it's rare for, you know, Spielberg to not only be um, not necessarily cynical, but just a little bit darker and philosophical that the last 20 minutes play more conventional to me. And the problem I have with AI is that I'm surprised that I'm not emotionally involved with what happens in the last 20 minutes. I don't think it's happy ending time. I don't, you know, necessarily dismiss it. I just don't feel much for him at that point, which is surprising to me. Yeah. You know, even after rewatching, I'm like, I'm wanting to love this movie. There's so many things I love. But why don't I love the last 20 minutes? I don't know. Um, but again... Like with Minority Report, I think it's just a subjective feeling I get with it, mm-hmm. rather than like saying, "Oh, he took a wrong turn." You know, it's 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 not necessarily adhering to, you know, what Philip K. Dick would have wanted. Right. And I understand that because whenever a filmmaker takes on a book, that's bound to happen. There's going to mm-hmm. be revisions and, and different interpretations of because they want to put their own stamp on it. Right. And I have no qualms with him being hopeful. I think it's just this time I'm kind of like, mm, I remember this being more impactful mm-hmm. with how it plays out rather than just like, okay, well, Max von Sydow dies and then that's, you know, it's just not as, 
exciting as everything that comes before it for me. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I mean, the last 20 minutes is not my favorite in, in the Spielberg canon. Uh, it's not my favorite ending ever. Uh, but uh, I, I almost, I, you know, you could, you could choose if you want to, for, you know, to think that the movie ends when Cruise gets captured and, you know, the, <laughs> just turn the, off the, the movie. Just turn it off. Yeah. If you, if you don't like it, you know, after that, fine, turn it off. It's a movie. You, it, it, it's yours now. You know, yeah. it's not it's not just Spielberg's. It's yours. Uh, so that you know, that movie can end whenever you want. If you, you want to believe that he's still in the chamber at the at you know when the after the precogs are freed and all that kind of stuff, be my guest. Be my guest. Yeah, I think it's just also even even something as goofy as the original Total Recall kind of ends on an ambiguous. Yes, note. it does. And I like that. I really uh-huh. do. Uh, here, it's like. Oh, they, you know, the precogs lived happily ever after in the cabin. Yeah. You know, and I, I just, hmm, it just doesn't mesh with, like, I mean, okay, it's a, it's, a, it's a narrative, it's a story that begins from A to B to C, but, like, the way this movie begins is so dark and so unlike anything Spielberg's done yeah. that I kind of want that consistency in a way. I mean, I don't necessarily want it to be all darkness. I mean, you got to have levity. Because, you know, even in a crazy, insane action sequence, there's bound to be a Spielberg moment of, like, them running through the, you know, kitchen window. Eating the hamburgers, yeah. Yeah, and all that, that's fine. I'm willing to forgive that. That's not a big deal. Like, I'm not expecting him to go all Kubrick or something. Right. But, again, like, I, I will not dismiss this movie and say, like, okay, it's still not one of his better movies. It's just... Something just didn't work for me this time, and that's okay. I'm willing to be okay with that because everything else is fantastic. Yeah, I think debating the last 20 minutes of Minority Report is not a winning proposition for anyone. It, <laughs> it, just, it just isn't because there's not – I mean, the, the, the meat of the film is in the first two hours. Sure. Um, and uh, so, I mean, so, so, you know, it, it's like debating – it's like saying that, like, the, the bookends of Saving Private Ryan is what kills the movie for you. Well, if that, that's true, then you're, you're very slight – Oh, being, yeah, you know? I'm not that, saying an ending, you know, is something that's going to make me dislike the movie. Right, right. As a whole. Yeah, I mean, that, everything that, else is you're great. Looking, you're looking for an, for an excuse. I mean, and people, you know, and, and Spielberg did it again with War of the Worlds when, you know, I mean, that's as, as dark a movie as he's ever done. Uh, and yet at the end, you know, the sun miraculously survives. Um, you know, I, th- I think everyone that let out, I mean, even even someone like me kind of let out in a collective groan. Uh, mm-hmm. At that one, just like really, he, he, the son survived and then made it all the way to the house. I'm like, okay, uh, but but that's one moment in a two-hour movie that I think is in, in, in just an expertly woven tapestry of special effects and what it's you know saying about uh, post 9/11 society and whatnot. And you know, we, I mean, we're, we're leading <sighs> yeah. in, we're leading into this discussion now. But Minority Report was a project that was in development for a long time. Hmm. You know, it was, it was a project that was in development for pre-9-11, uh, pre-9/11, and you can certainly see that, you know, they probably massaged certain things to suggest that. When, well, the Patriot Act didn't go into effect until 2003? Uh, do we, do we know what? I, it was, because it wasn't, like, immediately I, after. I think it was 2002. It was 2002? I think so, because I remember I was working at the library in 2001, okay. and then obviously 9-11 happened, yeah. and I could swear, like, maybe a year later is when, like, library records were being 
checked out. Well, that was the thing. I mean, because like Minority Report, you know, people. I mean, you can absolutely look at it now as sort of a, a not, you know, a statement on 9/11 and the, you know, the the you know, all the stuff you said about Big Brother checking into you and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. But at the time, because um, I don't think, I mean, even the Patriot was fresh. I mean, sure, that Minority Report was still happening already, so it wasn't necessarily a direct. Uh, connection to the Patriot Act. That was just happened to be a happy coincidence, like the fact that most of the stuff in Minority Report, which was, you know, heavily researched, and they looked into, like, things that are probably going to be happening in the future, and you look at it now, and those things are happening in mm -hmm. the future. Um, but I always look that uh, Spielberg, what I, I've always referred to as his 9-11 trilogy, began and with the terminal, uh, then went into War of the Worlds, and then ended up uh, concluding with Munich. That, to me, I think is the, sort of the definitive Spielberg 9-11 trilogy. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so everyone listening to this podcast right now is going, really, the terminal? Yeah. yeah. I, I like it. I don't love it. I know you love it. I love it. Um, it's interesting, I guess, when also when you bring up uh, War of the Worlds. He opens a movie so perfectly almost almost every time out of the gate um he just like hooks you in really uh -huh. really effectively like it's just compact here's what you're here's the world you're into and he's ready to immerse you into it and that's one of the more consistent things i can recall going all the way back to raiders just mm -hmm. like here's here it is here's the character here's what you're going to be dealing with and I really appreciate that, and I think like sometimes his endings are let down just because uh, it, it's setting you up for something, and you're expecting something. Um, and I guess with Spielberg as, as a filmmaker, yeah, you, you brought up early on a lot of things that you know he he tends to get uh, cited for, whether it be being you know overly sentimental or heavy-handed. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I've been critical of is his use of uh, scores and John Williams raising the score especially in something like Amistad or I I absolutely love Lincoln but there are moments where Tommy Lee Jones is speaking in the court and here comes the score to tell you yeah. how you feel those are minor things in the grand scheme of things but they're definitely critiques that I've yeah. had um, in, in other things Later on, even in like, well, obviously the first twenty minutes of Saving Private Ryan, I don't think there is a score. There isn't. There's no score in Saving Private Ryan. On, I mean, there's score during the the the, the prologue at the cemetery. Yeah. The score yeah. there, but once they hit uh, Normandy, there's no score until uh, you see all the bodies on the beach, and it's going to show us the body of uh, one of the one of the Ryan brothers. Yeah, yeah. But in the Saving, Saving Private Ryan, I mean, that's that's a that's a film that uses a pretty minimal score throughout. Mm -hmm. there are, I mean, Hanks has got a speech here, um, and uh, there are a couple little moments, but the Williams score is very, well, a little more subtle in that in that than uh, some of his other films. Uh, and it really doesn't really sort of burst into the real sort of orchestral thing uh, until during the end credits. Right. And that's, you know, that's great to me. Like, I mean, I don't... I don't mind a good score, obviously, but when it's right. sort of used in a manipulative way, and I think that's the one of the things about uh, you know Spielberg that I just can't get behind. But there are th certain movies where, like Minority Report, 
Munich, where or especially Catch Me If You Can, mm-hmm. where I'm like, the score really works without being overt and necessarily like in your face at all times. Yeah. And obviously, when you're creating uh, a science fiction action movie, of course you're going to want to have, uh, you know, some mm-hmm. a good score behind it to complement the escapism that you're experiencing. Right. And I love that in a lot of his science fiction movies. Um, but again, like it's interesting that you, we can also touch upon thematically, and I really like how you sort of correlated uh, a few of his movies as having a central theme. Um, and I, th- you know, to some degree, Minority Report touches upon crime and violence mm-hmm. in a way that's a little similar to what happens in Munich in terms of the experience of it and what it does to you and the aftermath of it. Uh, I think he just, I, th- I think he, as he got older too, more things kind of, you know, socially were bothering him. Yeah. Things he wanted to explore in his movies that he hadn't before. Like, obviously, he's always been a, you know, a great entertainer, but, you know, later on, he is really getting deep and interesting. And even in something like Catch Me If You Can, he is still tackling the, you know, uh, daddy issues that, yes. <laughs> but it, it really complements the story to where it has a, like, a, a really strong emotional impact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think he's sort of been ragged upon, okay, like, you know, even recently. Um, I still haven't seen War Horse, but we're going to be talking about that very briefly later on because that's uh, what Patrick sat through. And huh. it's a very interesting response to hear. But, yeah, I can see why, you know, something like War Horse is going to, you know, ro- have some eyes rolling. Sure. But, uh, you know... I was genuinely pleased with with Lincoln because of the script. Yeah. Um, but in the past, I will say, like, I don't know if I'm the biggest fan of David Kep because even something like War of the Worlds, which I love for the mm-hmm. most part, um, like I don't know the the how did the, how the aliens die again? Was it pathogens or? Yeah, I mean that's how it happens in the original story and even the original yeah. the original uh, the 1953 film is that they basically die from you know the the effects of germs in the atmosphere. Shouldn't they have known that? It's almost like it's like the aliens in uh, signs. Yeah, yeah. We should well, probably do you know, the research you can, ahead you can, of time. You can see water. Okay, so the signs <laughs> thing is really really freaking stupid. So you, you can see that you know, you go to the planet and it's blue. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, what is that? You know, you can't necessarily see the, and and that's, but I think that feeds into one of the the themes of you know War of the Worlds, and the idea is you know what can't you know what you can't see can kill you, mm-hmm. you know, and the fact that you know in in that story uh, the, the aliens have you know the, the 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 ships have been buried within the Earth for God knows how many years, and that now they've come down to you know enter those ships. And destroy the earth. So the, the 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 dormancy of the stuff that you know can kill us that exists out there in the world, whether it be a terrorist or a germ, uh, is very prevalent. So I think that fits in the, again thematically. It it didn't you know in the original 1953 film, which is one of my favorite science fiction films of all time because I saw it at a young age. Um, that it, it seemed a little. I mean, that seemed like more of a Dewey Machina than what happens in Spielberg's film, because at least I think that was thematically 
uh, put together in Spielberg's film, where in the original it was just kind of like they come, they destroy, and then all of a sudden they, the ships just start car- start crashing. Right. You know, like, and then they go, and it was the germs that killed them. Like, oh, okay, <laughs> all right, I guess that's how we're ending. Okay, cool. Yay, germs. Yeah, I just I just remember like, oh man, that's kind of a simple way to wrap things up, I guess. But yeah, yeah, if you if you are you know remaking something too, I guess that can play into how you decide to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm again, hell of an opening, uh, incredible yeah. action sequences. Yeah. I think Dakota Fanning is really great in she it is. too. She is. Um, yeah, and they're just a, again like stuff you would never expect to see in a Spielberg movie in that movie. Um, and then you know, like your hero killing of, of, of you yeah. know guy that's going crazy to protect your daughter, right? You know, right. That's that's kind of the big payoff for that Tim Robbins sequence. That I, I'm just not a fan of Tim Robbins in that movie. I just okay. I don't like his performance. Okay, <laughs> but. That payoff is it's worth it. I, yes. I I mean, and obviously with the little alien creature head popping in there and then having to escape. Yeah, it, that that stuff is good. Yeah. So I mean, um, it's a clear homage to the original film. Yeah, definitely, and it's a great B movie. But but again, he is thinking, uh, you know, in terms of the times. Yes. And what we're all going through and. It's almost like War of the Worlds could be, you know, uh, to Spielberg what 25th Hour was to Spike Lee. And, okay. <laughs> you know, in a way, like, just that's that's their response. That's, that's how they're dealing with it. That's how they're processing mm-hmm. all the things they're going through. And also just sort of, um, well, I want to make a kick-ass and, you know, effective science fiction movie. And he did that. Um, but again... I don't know if, you know, something like AI, I mean, obviously I brought this up at the very beginning and I don't know how you feel. Do you you feel like, you know, uh, the collaboration with Kubrick works and it's not like a clashing of tones in any way? Uh, I don't. I've always loved AI. I've. What, what what that movie has going for it, and I mean, again, you, you talk about the you know you talk about the clashing of tones, and that's the thing that when people look at AI, they clearly see that Spielberg is going for something darker. I mean, the, the, you know, the kid gets abandoned on the side of the road, and he, the, the the flesh farm uh, sequence and whatnot. What was, was that? Was flesh farm? Was that yeah. the name of the yeah, flesh that farm? Is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that whole sequence is as dark as Spiel- anything Spielberg's ever done, and even all the way up till the ending, where you know you 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 know this this kid, this robot, doesn't get all the answers he seeks. You know, it's a, it's a very cynical hmm. cynical film. Even as a, he has this sort of this momentary you know moment of hope and reunion with his you know his mom, who is really not his mom, but you know at the end of the movie, um, I mean, you, know, you talk about like the sort of the the progression of Spielberg's career and you go back to, you know, Close Encounters in E.T. when, you know, he did movies like that because he he, he wanted to see movies about aliens and, and, you know, films about communication and sure. films where, you know, that there was more, you were, we were looking at the skies and not dreading them, that there was hope out there, that there, you know, maybe there, whether you call it a heaven or just some other species just trying to get in touch with you, um, that was something he wanted to explore, and he never was really interested in doing. And he said this that he was never really interested in doing a movie where the aliens just come down and destroy us. Well, clearly that changed over time. You mentioned used cars earlier, which Spielberg was the producer on. 
Uh, and when he was, you know, setting, you know, Zemeckis up with, you know, the funding and, you know, getting that movie off the ground, and he originally read the script, Zemeckis talks about how he didn't quite believe in it because he didn't believe that there was actually a politician out there that would take graft and take, <laughs> take bribes. That's how sort of the, the innocence of Spielberg in those days kind of existed. And now, you know, you look at you know, this period, this post 9-11 period that we're in, and, you know, clearly things changed at some point around Schindler's List in 93, uh, when the experience he went through on that movie, it changed his worldview uh, quite a bit. Uh, and we, we would talk about the you know, Minority Report and the, the, the darker elements of crime and, you know, you know, accusing people who haven't really done anything uh, yet, and then, you know, we're going to get into Munich in a little while. Uh, yeah, it, it's a really it's a it's a fascinating arc. I mean, the, the the arcs you know that we talk about in movies all the time. There's a fascinating arc to Spielberg's career in general too. And you might not like every you know fit and spurt that it's gone through, but there's no again there's no denying that there's a very interesting progression to Spielberg the man uh, just as much as Spielberg the director. Yeah, no, those are all great points, and I think. You know, when people sort of harp on, like, oh, you know, AI, you know, he decided to get dark in a forceful way or something. Right. There's dark stuff throughout his career early on. Yes. Um, geez, look at Temple of Doom, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, I think, was he going through a divorce at that time? That's, that's yeah, he, that's that's the famous story is that yeah. that movie was so dark because both him and Lucas were going through a divorce. <laughs> but, but look at, I mean, Close Encounters is about a guy that leaves his family. Yeah. Yeah, you know, which is, you know, loosely based on his own father in a way. Um, you know, Raiders, how cynical is the ending of Raiders? That you go through everything you go through and, the, you know, the, the prized possession of history is left in this giant warehouse where it's never <laughs> going to be discovered until you do a sequel, you know, 13 years later. Um, you know, E.T. E e is, you know, is a film about divorce. For God's sake, yeah. there's. I mean, you don't realize that as a seven-year-old. You know, you think it's about a cute little movie about an alien and the, his adventures on Earth. Uh, but that, man, that's a very serious movie. Uh, you know, as as much for adults as it is for kids about divorce and the effects on children uh, and stuff like that. And you you mentioned Temple of Doom uh, and then color. You know, color purple. People you know felt that he soft again. He softened certain things and he made. You know, he, he was not very flattering towards black men. That's one of the reasons why. People say it, it didn't win any Oscars that year. Um, yeah, there's 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 stuff. Through, I mean, Indiana Jones might be a statutory rapist, for God's sakes. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, there's there's stuff throughout his career that you you can point to, and I think because people you know generally view Spielberg as an optimist and have not you know you know gotten past their own feelings on that, uh, they have not you know had an arc in their own lives that it's very easy to just see him as the eternal optimist and not recognize that he's exploring darker themes uh, in the middle of that. Yeah, and I think I appreciate him more and more because of that, and I can recognize that. And, you know, we can transition over into a film I'm very excited to talk about. Cause, um, Me too. When I saw it, <laughs> it, it was definitely in, like, the lower part of my uh, top ten for that year, uh -huh. um, but God, it is almost is almost a masterpiece. And you know, for me to say that about you know another, well, I I, I definitely have another one we'll talk about later. But okay. <laughs> Latter Day Spielberg, I I always see like you know just 
something minor or just a quibble or something that just keeps it from being like a perfect four out of four for me. Mm-hmm. And um, Munich is just like it might be one of the darkest things he's ever done and I like that it has no heroes or villains it sort of sees the the aftermath of you know uh, terrorism as this hopeless cycle of violence with no silver lining um, you know and obviously it's it's a reaction to what we were going through in retaliation you know with the Taliban and it, it just seemed to echo our times once again by going back and exploring some uh, a, a major uh, historical event it's it's a, it's also a, just a really bleak movie that manages to also evoke the 70s era spy thriller too at the same time something like day of the jackal or you know it just has these incredibly well executed and intense assassination sequences this is not sentimental Spielberg um, there's you know internal conflict there's brutality yeah. there, and yet it's a true filmmaker's film with these incredible camera work um, yeah. very fluid geometric it, and yet it's never like showy like De Palma or something you know mm-hmm. so I mean like and there's just there's this moment too like uh, the, the a dying assassin stops to say goodbye to her cat before collapsing in a pool of blood yeah like this is Spielberg <laughs> you know like okay th- there is that Spielberg who you know showed us a severed leg in Jaws this is also a Spielberg who's going to show us specifically what he's thinking and feeling and experiencing in the midst of darker times that we're all going through politically. Um, even something like Lincoln, I was thinking while watching it, well, this is probably what Obama's going through, <laughs> right. you know, dealing with health care right now. Yeah. So I, I like that he's reflecting you know, socially without necessarily preaching. Um, you know, certainly sometimes his screenplays or his characters sort of spout out the themes or something obvious, but Munich it doesn't doesn't do that. It's it, it plays out organically. It's a it, in its thesis about revenge. It's also a great piece of storytelling, great performances, and despite the slow motion sex scene, I think it's damn near perfect. And I'm glad I rewatched it. It's fucking great yeah you get you get to, to that to the sex scene and whatnot and of course that's the moment that everyone likes to, to 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 focus on as the reason why they can't you know fully embrace the film you know which is just, again just silly look at everything um, and, before it people yeah look at everything before and and just you know and of course they miss all you know they, they tend to misinterpret that scene as well but you know we can get to sure. that later um, but no, like, like I said, the you know what I call his nine eleven trilogy, which starts with the terminal, which I feel I should explain why I include that in yeah, there. Yeah, definitely go ahead. I mean, well, that's, I mean, it's, it's a film that's it's a, it's a Capra esque comedy, okay? Yeah. And you talked about you know the way we sort of deal with things, and you know a real easy way to deal with nine eleven, even though it you know you might not want to, is to deal it through humor and you know whimsy, you know, and then that seems like two things that um, shouldn't go together. But you deal with you know 9/11 in the in the guise of a foreigner who comes to this country, and we're going to keep him essentially locked up in the in their in the airport terminal, the the very you know setting of you know where you know the the, the terrorism began mm-hmm. uh, with 9/11. And at one point in the movie, 
just you know briefly, there's a scene where Stanley Tucci's character, uh, you know, a classic sort of Capra-esque type villain, a bureaucracy, you know, this bureaucracy member, um, you know, tries to get Tom Hanks's, you know, Victor to basically admit that he's afraid of his country. Hmm. You know, and that's kind of what, you know, the government was, you know, doing to us and that we were sort of, you know, with the, you know, not just the Patriot Act, uh, but, you know, just all the things that we, you know, we, we were t- being taught to fear what was happening in our country. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's that's it's, it's a very it's a small moment in the terminal, uh, but it's sort of it, it, it breeds, you know, what's going on in that in that film and what Spielberg was sort of getting at. Uh, like I said, in the guise of a Capra-esque romantic-type comedy, this fanciful story. Uh, so there's that. And then War of the Worlds is obviously a film that deals with the actual destruction and the aftermath of a 9-11-type situation. And then you have Munich, which is the response, mm-hmm. which is the, the conclusion. And there, there, there's, there, way, there are so many elements where we could begin with this. You, I mean, you talk, obviously, you got the the whole idea of the response to violence and the clear thematic arc of the film is that violence begets violence and it's never going to end if you can i mean and that's shown throughout the movies that every time they have you know this minor victory of pulling off one of their assassinations it's immediately followed by a response from the terrorists you know it might not necessarily be a direct response to one of their people but it's happening it's an endless cycle of, of violence that is occurring and it's just you know and the the arc that uh, Eric Bana's character Abner goes through is that he more and more throughout the film he be, starts to, be, to think more like the terrorists you know he yeah. he, be, he becomes one of them in a way and that you know he's he's very you know he has that sort of that 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 Spielberg optimism at the beginning you know he you know he's he's a cook and he's you know he's you know he can pre- he prepares all these meals and you know he's he's in charge and you know they, there's a there's a level of control that he believes he has uh but the more he sees that so little is being done and then the you know his handler played by Jeffrey Rush uh is not going to give him the necessary tools or you know or allow him to go you know get the people that he thinks that they should be going after uh, he, he starts to, to think like we're going to, you know, he starts to go off track you know, they end up going to Beirut at one point and killing a whole bunch of people that then upsets another group of people that were helping him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get to the, the, the scene with the, the assassin who then takes one of their own. That's a, that's the, like the, the, the most, the purest revenge sequence in the entire movie because yeah. the rest of them are you know the people that they're killing are sort of these indirect targets they're they, you know because all the terrorists the people who were actually literally responsible for munich uh, are all dead you know they're right. all dead so we're going and after these are just people who apparently that that had some involvement yeah. with black september they might have funded it you know maybe indirectly or directly uh and then the more that they continue on the more they just begin to discover that they begin to question their own motives and not even sure if they're targeting the right people yeah and it become and then it becomes very clear that they are being sort of like well we'll help you get this guy but go after this guy and well, what does it matter it's, he's a bad guy you might as well kill him too um and and then then throughout all these things that are going on, Spielberg's also sort of tackling the idea of Israel and Palestine, mm-hmm. you know, which I'm sure is another reason why you know the film was attacked at the time, you know, whether you know whether Spielberg was pro or anti-Israel, you know, was became a thing. Sure. Um, and there's that great scene at the safe house where you have the you know, the members of the PLO are there sharing this house with 
you know, the people who are hunting down, you know, people of their ilk, essentially. But it's a safe house. And, you know, they repeat that. It's a safe house. <laughs> you know, we're all safe here from each other. And we can ha have enough time to have this conversation that, you know, my children's children are going to continue fighting this fight forever. And that's where, you know, Banna's, you know, Abner is, you know, shooting down this theory. But not long after, he's thinking just like him. Um, and this whole idea of, you know, one of Spielberg's prevailing themes throughout his career is the idea of home, you know, and you can call that, you know, an Israel thing if, if you want. Uh, but, you know, I mean, what's, you know, the, the, mo the, the most frequently used catchphrase from Spielberg's career? It's E.T. phone home. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, Richard Dreyfuss in Close Encounters is a guy that doesn't feel at home well, where he is he, with his family. He's definitely interested in, like, lost souls yes. who managed to find hopefully their best self <laughs> and he's i think you know a, a good theme too maybe would be resilience uh, like a lot of his characters sort of you know have to adapt to their circumstances even if it means compromising something that they believe in and eric banna's character yeah like his arc is really interesting to follow and best performance he's ever given, by the way. Absolutely, and yeah. it's not an actor I was too high up on. Mm -hmm. um, but here, it's just yeah, you can you can see the transition and you believe it throughout. Um, and I guess you know, I understand why you know the sex scene is is there. Um, I'm pretty sure I do anyway. Like because <laughs> you know it shows early on, you know him having you know an uh, you know. Making love, basically, yes. you know, having really good loving sex, mm -hmm. um, but then you know it's the it's basically like you know his he's haunted he it's right. post traumatic stress affecting his relationship and his ability to be what he once was, mm -hmm. and that's fine. I mean, I think it's just again, I like the idea, not necessarily the execution of that one single thing in this entire right. movie, and of course. After, like, a year of maybe not seeing it, I was always doing that, too. I was like, oh, yeah, Munich has that stupid sex scene towards the end. Right. And just focusing on the negative without remembering, God, everything else before it is so effective. Right. And, I mean, that sex scene, I mean, you know, don't want to spend too much time on it. I suppose, no, you don't have but, to. <laughs> but, um, but, I mean, like, because he, cause he's, the, the character is continually having these flashbacks, um, you know, mm -hmm. we sort of like, you know, see through his eyes. He's, you know, we sort of get pieced together, you know, what happens once uh, the terrorists get to the, the hostages to the airport. Um, and that's, you know, it's, 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 you know, broken up throughout the movie. And then it culminates in this moment where Abner's, you know, Abner's character, or Banna as Abner, is completely paranoid out of his mind. He doesn't mm -hmm. know who to trust anymore. Um, the first time we see him making love with his wife, she's pregnant. There's life there. He's doing it very carefully from behind. Um, and then, you know, now he's, <laughs> he's, he's this massive, this mass murderer. Um, and he's, you know, he's, he's acting out and he's not necessarily, yeah. there's cause some people like to make the connection and just like, well, look, he's getting off on the, the remembering the hostages. Like, no, that's not what it's about. Dummy. You know, I mean, yeah, that's it's the just, worst interpretation. Like, right, they, they immediately jump to the worst possible connection between those scenes. Um, but it, but again, it, it goes to Spielberg, the way Spielberg tells the story, and the way the the screenplay by Eric Roth and uh, Tony Kushner, a, a magnificent screenplay, great, great writer, uh, puts the thing together. Um, and one of the, the, the one of the key relationships in the story is the one between 
Avner and Ephraim, played by Jeffrey Rush. And there's a real mm-hmm. interesting dynamic between the two of them because they have, you know, you got the, the 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 case handler and a guy who's going to be out there, you know, you know, doing the work. And there's a immediately immediate mistrust between these two, and they're not quite sure uh, if they can trust the other one. And but the thing that is most important in those scenes is the way food, surprisingly enough, plays into it. Hmm. Um, the first time. Um, well, the sec- one of the fir- one of the first scenes between the two of them, um, Jeffrey Rush's character, they're walking along the seaside, and they're talking. You know, he's sort of laying out, you know, what you know th- this mission is going to be, who they're going after, and Jeffrey Rush has got the baklava, and he's saying, you know, it's one of the one of the pleasures is eating something sweet by the seaside. Right. You know, this this you know, and food food plays a, a big part in the entire movie. I mean, it's a big thing with Eric Bana's character who's a cook and then the Michael Lonsdale character who's also a cook and they have that he has that line that says like we both have big stupid butcher hands, you know. <laughs> that, well, that, I like the camaraderie of when they're first getting together and they're all yeah. sharing a meal together and and I think the scene even ends with um one of the guys saying like, Well, he knows how to make a great brisket. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> the, the first scene of the the five guys, right. the team getting together. Is like why they make you leaders, like because he really knows how to cook a brisket. Yeah, you know, and he makes these feasts, you know, for his team all the time. Hmm. He's constantly cooking for his team. Um, but to go back, he so but Jeffrey Rush, you know, offers Eric Van, uh, Abner some of the baklava, and he he declines. It's just kind of a casual. I know, no, thank you. Uh, then there's a scene later on where uh, again Eric Bana has created this feast for his team, and Jeffrey Rush is there uh, at the table, and he's the only one not eating. Hmm. He's the only he's the only one not eating, and he's upset with them because they want to go to Beirut and you know take out one of the people that they they've come to know um, is he's he's on the list, but. Uh, they don't want him to go over there. It's like we'll take, we'll handle that. You don't take care of it. And Jeffrey Rush isn't eating. Then there's a scene later on uh, after the mission is basically complete, and Abner's going through his paranoia factor, and he gives Jeffrey Rush some baklava, and Jeffrey Rush tries to give it back to him, and he hmm. says, oh, "No, you take it, and I hope you get a bellyache when you eat it." <laughs> you know, it's real interesting yeah. dynamic. And then you get to the final scene of the movie, and Abner looks at Ephraim after all the stuff that has gone on, and after all the mistrust, and he's not sure what they've done anymore, and he looks Ephraim dead in the eye, and he goes, there's something in, you know, one of our sacred texts that talks about breaking bread, you know, as a sign of peace. Mm. Come to my house, break bread with me. And Ephraim looks him in the eye, and he goes, No. And he walks away, and they go their separate ways. And what's the final image of the movie? Man, the twin towers. Yeah, you know. So that's Holy a, shit. <laughs> it's a real interesting thing because of that whole idea. Um, I mean, there's a scene earlier when uh, uh, I think it was a, a, right after one of the one of the team members uh, dies. Uh, Abner's looking in a window that has all this like the kitchen appliances. It has like this perfect, you know, like the perfect pan for cooking something. Uh, and uh, Louis, played by uh, Matthew Almodic, I don't know. I'm not, I think I'm, that's it. Yeah. How, how you spell it? How you say his name is a little troubling, but uh, a great, you know, French actor. Mm-hmm. And as Louis, his one of his contacts, uh, his inf- information contacts, and he comes up to him, and you know, he says, "You can have, you know, a uh, you know a set of kitchen equipment like that someday." Um, and he goes, you know, the, the, you know, it, it, it costs a lot, but then again, that's home doesn't home always, you know, home always does, you know, which feeds into the idea <laughs> of Palestinian, you know, Israel conflict and what no they're pun going intended with the feeds into, 
Right. Exactly. <laughs> no pun intended, indeed. Um, but yeah, no, that's it's oh, there's there's so much. I mean, this is stuff that you know struck me back in 2005 when I named it the best film of the year, and watching it again last night. Uh, just it's amazing how because you know even going back to rewatch I'm just like oh this is you know two hour and forty some minute movie doesn't gonna, feel like it doesn't feel like it this movie this movie moves mm-hmm. and there are there are more assassination scenes than I even remembered in the film yeah. I mean you know both uh, good ones that succeed and ones that don't uh, and once the, the the team gets started. And the, you know Williams' you know, score is going to, you know, which he again uses again when Abner thinks he's being stalked as you know, like you know, that's going to be his assassination. Mm-hmm. Uh, Williams reuses that score again. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's you don't want to call a movie like that entertaining, but it is thrilling. It is absolutely thrilling in like the worst possible way. Yeah, I was I was thinking Hitchcock at one point too because. Oh, you know the 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 suspense. I mean, I I kind of knew deep down, like okay, I know Spielberg is going dark again, and that's great. But I I can't imagine that scene with the little girl picking up the telephone. Yes, yes. That was that that is that is definitely Hitchcockian in terms of the suspense you feel. Certainly. And, oh my God! Like I'm just even though I'd seen it before. I still had to refresh myself and go. Okay, there's no way it's gonna end that way. And okay, it's but the execution of it all is like flawless. Yeah. And he and there's so many moments in this movie like that. Um, you know, and that's the thing is like you, you bring that up about like well, you know, we shouldn't call it entertaining. You know, and how much of this is accurate? That's another thing that people try to debate. It's loosely based on true events. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that, you know, in, in the midst of, like, documentary films and uh, certainly, you know, historical accuracy being an issue, whether if it's, you know, fiction film or not, it's it, it's something I think people were, you know, touchy about after mm-hmm. 9-11 in terms of, you know, how you mentioned, is it, you know, pro-Palestinian? And I, th- I think people, you know, really get sensitive to those things without focusing on the strengths that this movie has and the kind of themes he's bringing to the table he didn't necessarily do before. So yeah. that makes it fresh. Um, and, you know, it's it's stuff that provokes thought while still being, you know, an incredible piece of entertainment. And I think that's what I appreciate the most. When a filmmaker can find that balance, mm-hmm. that can you know intellectually stimulate you but still you know captivate you with its imagery yeah and he does that throughout this entire movie and i just i think maybe as i get older too i'll grow to appreciate it and think deeper about it and what it means and what it meant to us when we were feeling so many conflicting emotions going on at that time mm-hmm. and i just really appreciate guys like you know spike lee and Steven Spielberg working out their feelings in this way. Yeah, and I think, you know, you touched on a point is that, you know, as far as, like, getting sidetracked, I think, you know, that happens, I think, more often with Spielberg than a lot of other directors is that people, I think, you know, especially critics, you know, sometimes, you know, they, they, look, they, they, they look past things and they sort of, like, they go for it because they, they're aware that there, there is something deeper going on in Spielberg stuff and mm-hmm. sometimes they overthink it. 
to the to, and to like the worst possible extremes, not just with like like the sex scene, but even like the scene like you mentioned the Hitchcockian scene with the you know the daughter picking up the phone. You know the the most cynical Spielberg haters out there immediately just go like, oh, well, of course he's not going to kill the kid. <laughs> you know that they immediately just think that as opposed to how like what the the representation of that kid means and because that's the it's the second assassination scene in the movie and it's the moment where the the teams begins to start questioning what they're doing you know so there's you know no one question when tarantino you know Uma, Uma Thurman kills the you know vivica fox in front of her daughter no one questioned the fact like oh well you know you know no one you know of course he didn't kill the child you know, no one said anything then, but of course that again was a, a thematic moment in the Kill Bill uh, canon. Sure. So it's the moment when you know it's after he she's killed everyone in in uh, Okinawa and whatnot. Um, that there's a, it's the first moment where she, you know, she starts she t- starts taking off her revenge hat, begins to reconnect with her uh, maternal self again. Yeah. You know, she doesn't the, the the violence in Kill Bill. If you you look at a linear, you know, as a linear state. Um, is a it, it, you know there's a progression there you know that's very brutal. Her first couple things are very brutal, and once she has the kid, the 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 violence uh, veers off in another direction. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so you know we're getting a little little sidetracked there. But on the on the DVD of Munich, uh, you know Spielberg you know introduces the film, and he talks that there are three sort of indisputable facts about Munich that are indisputable. One that there was a massacre at the Olympics. And the, the you know what what is portrayed in that movie is accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, the fact that Golda Meir did order these assassinations that she as a, as a measured response uh, to you know what had happened that she did order it, and that these attacks did play out. They might not have played out the way they do you know in the movie, but there were there was a team out there carrying out these assassinations. And I don't know if, I don't know if you remember this, but. There was, a, there was actually another version of this story that was actually an HBO. Oh, movie. yeah. Was it One Day in September? No, no, no. It was called uh, Sword of Gideon. Hmm. It was called Sword of Gideon, and it had uh, Michael York was in it. Uh, I think Stephen Bauer uh, was in it. Um, you, have to, you have to look that up. But, uh, but I remember okay. seeing that movie as a kid on HBO. Um, and it's a, li- a little different, although there's a scene in Munich there uh, where one of the, the team members ends up dead on a uh, park bench mm-hmm. and we're not sure if it's if it was a it was someone killed him or if it was a suicide that seems exactly from sort of Gideon so clearly and and, and they're both taken from the same book uh, Vengeance, Vengeance uh, yeah. George, George Soros I think is the author's name so both of those both of them are taken from the same text so they're clearly working from uh, the, the same thing one Michael York's character gets killed by a, a bomb that goes off he was the bomb expert uh, in the movie it's done in a different d- done in a different way uh, but yeah so I remember seeing that movie as a kid and it's a little little you know the, a, a lot you know, it's a lot different than what Spielberg pulled off because I think there's uh, there's a lot more going on uh, in, in what what Spielberg and Kushner and Roth uh, are trying to achieve with that screenplay yeah, it's probably more thematically rich, I would think. Um, yeah, because those are guys who are big time intellectuals. A guy like yes. Kushner. Yeah, he's just watch Angels in America. Angels in America and Lincoln. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Lincoln's great. Um, yeah. Again, I there are certain movies from Spielberg where I'm like, God, I, you know, I'm I can't believe I dismissed this. Or it's great to rewatch it to. 
you know, invigorate yourself and also just experience what Spielberg is capable of as a filmmaker. And it's throughout the majority of his career. Of course, he had some slumps. Everybody does. Um, you know, I have gone on record in saying his hook is horrible. Uh, but I will say, and maybe maybe we can just, uh, you know, jump to something that I want to question because it's interesting to me. And the re... Uh, the, the arrival of a new Indiana Jones movie so many years after uh, Last Crusade, mm-hmm. it had that same feeling we all had when, um, you know, uh, Phantom Menace came right. around. We're just like, you know, oh my god, I can't wait for this. This is going right. to be great because it's going to be like reliving my childhood, right. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I cannot... I cannot imagine ever wanting to sit through Crystal Skull again. Mm-hmm. It's probably the only Spielberg movie um, from that time that I just can't stomach. Like yeah. I, and it is a, it has a lot to do too with watching um, Raiders, Temple of Doom, and Last Crusade pretty close within the past month month or two, and just like seeing the joy. And utter exhilaration from everything and the action sequences and obviously Harrison Ford and I, Crystal Skull just feels like a, a complete like not as, it's, it doesn't feel like a genuine Indiana Jones movie to me but somebody imitating an Indiana Jones movie to me and Harrison Ford seems bored throughout mm, I, I mean I, I as someone who has defended Crystal Skull, um, and it's not going to win me any new fans on this podcast because I mean, to me, that Crystal Skull is an easy target. Yeah, of all I the Indiana, if all the Indiana Jones movie, yes, it's it's the the lesser of 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 the bunch, uh, and it would have been very interesting to see what Frank Darabont's script would have played <laughs> out with. Um, but again, I, I, with, with Crystal Skull, yeah, there there are things in the movie stuff that you have touched upon, um, and now of course it also has the taint of Shia LaBeouf in Ugh. it as well. Uh, so that's not going to win any any new fans, certainly. Um, but again, there, I think there is s- certain joy in some of the filmmaking in there. Um, but it, but again, when I, when I mentioned it's an easy target, I, I always love that. Like the, one of the first criticisms of the movie was people, you know, it was a very simple criticism. They go, "Flying saucers, really? Yeah, you know, like aliens, really." And I, I, that always struck me as odd. Because they had no problem with the religious aspects of the Holy Grail and the mystical <laughs> powers of that and what the, the ending of Lost Ark does. They had no problem with that. But is but it a, because Spielberg has dealt with aliens so much at this point? I don't, know, I don't think people looked at it like, oh, they didn't go aliens again. They went, oh, aliens, really? You mm-hmm. know, and of course, people, you know, the, the nuke the fridge moment, you know, there's that stuff. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of goofy stuff. Uh, but you come to expect that kind of stuff. You do it, come yeah. to expect that, and the, the way you know Spielberg would incorporate humor into his action sequences. You know, we talked about Minority Report. He does it in there too, and as, as dark as as movie as that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, people and people you know would like to you know blame Lucas, <laughs> you know, and whatnot, and his tinkering, and he didn't like the Darabont script, and threw that out, and you know reworked it himself. Um, so yeah, so there's, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm not going to stand up on a pedestal and, you know, 
you know, say that people are wrong about Crystal Skull the way I would say they were wrong about Munich. Um, but, you know, I, I don't have the, the, the hatred of that movie that people are very easily like to come down on it with. I just watched it again hoping I wasn't going to feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I guess it is a, there is just a lot of investment to the... I mean, even, even Last Crusade... I, I really like a lot because yeah. it's fun. And, yeah. you know, the relationship with, with him and Sean Connery is great. And there's mm-hmm. wonderful one-liners throughout that movie. And, you know, no ticket. And all, yeah. like, just there's so many memorable things. And it's, it's also probably because, you know, you, even more so than Raiders, I think when I was younger, I was watching that one over and over on VHS just because sure. it was lighter on its feet. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't know, just... Is there something about Crystal Skull that just does not feel genuine to me? Like it, it doesn't. I don't know why all the pieces don't come together. I don't like there are CGI things, and I understand that's inevitable in this day right. and age. But you know, going back to Raiders, and I know it's not fair to compare, but it, right. it's just the one kind of major blemish in his recent work that I just kind of go, oh, that's such a shame. I think I, I think a, a way to look at Crystal Skull and you sort of you, you know you talk about the, the separated you know, from the other ones. Yeah, well, not even so much that. No, because that, that's how I look at a couple of the die, like at least one of the Die Hard movies. Like, don't consider you know the Die Hard three a Die Hard movie, and it's pretty entertaining. Um, sure. You look, you connect it to the other two, and it just it's not the same. But no, I, I I wouldn't you know put a divide between the two as like saying like oh well just don't think of it as an Indiana Jones movie and you'll enjoy it. No, I'm not going to play that card. Um, but uh, you know what I would say, like you talk about, like the you know how much investment they had when they were making that movie. I don't look at Crystal Skull the way I, the same way I look at like say Lost World, where it seemed like <laughs> Spielberg didn't seem as interested in doing Lost World as he was doing Jurassic Park. Although there, I think there are great set pieces in Jurassic oh, Park. Oh sure, they're fantastic. And set there are great set in pieces in Crystal Skull. Yeah, um, but the, the, like Jurassic, like Lost World felt more like the contractional obligation. Than Crystal Skull. The Crystal Skull was, you know, a project that they, they were trying to, you know, do for so many years, and they didn't. They didn't have the right script, and the schedules weren't working out. And they mm-hmm. finally, I think, they finally like had this like this black hole moment in all of their careers. Just like, yeah, this is the time we have to do it. If we don't do it now, we're probably never going to do it. So they did it, you know. And they probably didn't have the right script, you know, the, the right version of that script. Any, you know, anyway. Uh, but you know, to, 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 I don't know. There, there, there's there's a lot of stuff in that movie that I enjoy. I don't have the you know the aliens really. I don't have that mentality at all. Because you monkeys. Oh well, yeah, the the, the <laughs> monkeys. Yeah, the monkey scene. I know. Um, but the, again, that jungle chase scene is you know, you know monkeys aside is pretty terrific. There's a sure. lot. Of, there's a lot of fun stuff in that in that jungle sequence. There's a lot of fun stuff in that campus chase. Where they're going, you know, running, you know, on the motorcycle and running through the cars yeah. and stuff. Um, I think the, the the scene in the the warehouse at the beginning, uh, even if it's, it seems a little bit mm. slowed down, and that's kind of the point of it. Yeah, uh, I guess. Work, works for me. Um, but and again, I, I look, I I don't know, I look at some of the craftsmanship and the way that he introduces characters and you know he moves the camera. You go back to Munich and the way. Golda Meir is introduced, and you, you don't see her mm-hmm. at first, and then she's behind the the folder. The way Jeffrey Rush, you don't even know he's there. You know, I think the way he introduces him says a lot about who Spielberg thinks that character is, um, and just little just little flourishes like that. You know, flourishes that you don't see in the average 
you know, blockbuster that comes out. You know, 80% of them, you don't see this, the, the kind of craftsmanship that, and the, the, the effort that Spielberg puts into just setting up shots. You know, you don't see that. You don't see that nonstop, you know, and, you know stuff like that. You know, so, I, I, so I admire stuff like that, even if I admit that it's not quite up to snuff with some of his previous works. So, well, sue me. It's okay. I'll forgive you. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm not going to ever invest some time in Phantom yeah, Menace or the clones or anything. Right. <laughs> no, don't do it. Uh, no. Yeah. So I'm not going to sit there and you know draw a line in the sand and say, oh, "You're Crystal Skull. You're either with me or against me." Like, no, I'm not. I'm not going to mount a passionate defense. You know, I like the movie, and that's the way it is. And if you think I'm a lesser person for it, well, you know, whatever. So the other movie I consider to be a masterpiece, which. You know, it's one of his simpler movies, and maybe the, the the kind of love you have for something like The Terminal is what I have for Catch Me If You Can. Mm-hmm. I absolutely adore everything about it. Um, again, he has that interest in, in, in lost souls who are trying to reinvent themselves in some way. Yeah. And he's never done, like, with more joy, too. I mean, it's just a fun movie. It is. And... I mean, again, like I, I, I do have an affinity for films about con artists and guys who just get away with shit right. <laughs> by being charming and but intelligent at the same time. Yeah. Um, but for me, like the motivation as to why uh, DiCaprio's character decides to start a life of fraud is completely relatable. It's you know, and and it goes back to his relationship with his father, and of course, that's a soft spot for me. It's another film about divorce. Yeah, absolutely, and you know. Here it makes complete sense, and it adds a lot of emotion for me, and to where I actually care about the fate of everyone involved. And I think Hanks is having a blast, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's just I, I love its energy. It's one of the more rewatchable Spielberg films for me. Um, a little long, but that's not not an issue because it doesn't feel long. Um, and right in I, that stretch where everyone said it was twenty minutes too long, yeah, if it can't fits right into it. <laughs> but I don't I don't agree. I I think it's one of his more fun movies and I love going back to it. So I, I, I don't know. Like this is this in Munich for me are like tops from that time. I am a pretty big fan of Tom Cruise, but I don't think he's, his performances are like amazing in either film. I think he's good. I think he's serviceable. You know, he mm-hmm. brings the movie stars persona and it yeah. complements the movie. Um, but I don't think it's anything spectacular. Uh, and, and it's just because, again, we, you know, have seen him in stuff like Magnolia, and you want more. But, you know, at the same time, like, well, we got Matthew McConaughey right now, so let's just focus on him. <laughs> we're, we're good. Well, Cruz, I mean, I, I think you, you sell him a little bit short. I mean, this might not be, you might not look at those two films as, you know, like the best of Cruz's career. But at the same time, it's it's because he's Tom Cruise and because he is such yeah. a good actor that he grounds those movies with the believability and the humanity that those movies really need to succeed. Particularly Minority Report. That's a very that's a very difficult performance in that film. It's really because I mean, in both films he's kind of playing a bastard in a way. He's not. Yeah, I he's, mean, he's, he's, he's playing a drug addict and then a right. shitty father, a deadbeat, a deadbeat dad. Yeah. he's particularly a bastard in War of the Worlds. In Minority Report, he's kind of, just kind of a broken guy. You know, and mm-hmm. I think that they're they're really wonderful scenes of 
humanity in the film. I mean, the scene where he, you know, he discovers that he's the the transition in that one sequence where he, you know, he's, you know, he's after, you know, he's trying to solve the mystery. Then he has, he's completely brought back to his past when he, when he believes the guy he's after is the guy that killed his son or took his son. And then the, the, the sort of, sort of the, 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 the evil joy that he has on his face when he realizes he's going to kill this guy. Like he's finally found this guy and he's going to take, he's going to savor this moment. It's a, it's a really wonderful piece of acting that he does in that sequence. That's also, that begins with that tremendous shot of him and Samantha Morton with the two heads combined, which is, I mean, the composition of that sequence is just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. It's one of my favorite, favorite moments in the whole movie. Mm -hmm. Well, what can we say? Are we done? Just about. Oh God. Was there one more that you really, really wanted to bring up? No, I don't think so. I think we, we sort of touched upon uh, the greatness of my favorite director. He's, and, uh, he's so hopefully. great. We had to talk about him back-to-back <laughs> two episodes. Yeah. And it's about time. Right. We've been... Like Patrick said, it didn't feel like work <laughs> to revisit a bunch of Spielberg movies. No. I mean, sometimes the podcast never feels like work because we love movies, but right. every now and then... I had to sit through four or five Lars von Trier movies in a row. Not fun. No, not fun. But Spielberg, completely a different story. Right. Very glad we got to, you know, talk talk over. And, uh, yeah, I'm very happy right now. Because, like, I'm, I'm sort of, like, reinvigorated, too, right. why I love movies. Well, I thank you for having me on to, you know, choosing me to be a part of the, this particular director, obviously. It's, I mean, doing, I mean, you, now I think you've probably encapsulated three of my favorite living directors, Spielberg, Zemeckis, and Christopher Nolan. Um, and I'm fine with that. You know, if pe- people want to, you know, say, like, well, clearly he's not a good art guy. Well, that's okay, fine. But I guarantee I know these three directors better than some other people. So, that's um, probably true. You have brought up things in both Spielberg movies and something like The Prestige that uh, makes me rethink my own opinion, too. Yeah. And that's that's saying a lot. Like, bring on the book, Eric. <laughs> bring on the book of essays. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. But, no, I think, you know, what I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be arrogant about the thing, but I think what, no. the larger point I'm trying to bring up is that, like, what you're doing with the podcast is that, you know, to, you know, to the, the, the comparing directors sometimes can be silly because they touch upon different aspects of filmmaking. They touch upon different themes mm-hmm. and the stories they want to tell. I mean, comparing, you know, Spielberg to uh, Paul Thomas Anderson or comparing Scorsese to David Cronenberg or, you know, Spike Jones to John Carpenter. I mean, it's just everyone, ha- you know, they, they all bring something to the table. Um, and to, you know, I think, I think you know, you, you, want, you should compare a director's work with their own work. You know, I think yeah. that's the best, the best way to do it. With the, with, the, with the directors we respect, there's no sense, you know, you know saying that Spielberg is better than Michael Bay because that's just a given. We know this, <laughs> okay, because we're not going to spend, you know, uh, three hours talking about Michael Bay films. We know who the, who the genuine directors are. We know uh, who the ones who have influenced cinema and have been influenced by cinema uh, throughout times, and those are the directors that are going to flourish, and they're going to flourish through their work. They're going to flourish, on, you know, with discussion on your podcast, uh, and that's, you know, that's what you know. I, 
think that's what's great about talking about a director in their in their own element. You know, yeah. there's no there's no sense saying that Spielberg sucks because Crystal Skull, you know, is you know a lesser work, and that's why you know David Cronenberg is better than he is. No, this you know whatever. That's <laughs> really just, that's that's the way I feel. Yeah, no, that's a really limited perspective. Yes, and I think true movie fans can look beyond that. There, I would hope that most people who genuinely love movies still can find a lot to love about Spielberg. You don't have to love right. every movie, and you could certainly you know, say, well, I'm not the biggest fan because of he did this and this and this, but come on. Right. The earlier part of his career defined a generation of both filmmakers and film lovers. Yes. So, I mean, there, there, are more people, there are more people that became film lovers because of someone like Steven Spielberg than just about any director in history. You know, I mean, the, all the, the greats are the greats because they are the greats. And it's that simple. And uh, it, it doesn't mean Spielberg is better than one or someone's better than Spielberg. Um, everyone has brought something to this wonderful world of movies that we all love. And to simply dismiss one over the other because you simply think someone's better is, is really limited thinking, which we yeah. mentioned earlier. And I really, I, I don't really have anything to hear from those people. I agree, but you know what I would like to hear? Mm-hmm. I want to hear... Now, this is unprecedented, unprecedented and um, I'm sure Patrick's going to get mad, because we <laughs> usually do top threes. Okay. Um, what we did for the last episode, we did our top three pre-Jurassic Park choices, but honestly, okay. both Colin and Patrick felt like, well, this would be our top three altogether, including post-Jurassic post. Park. Right. So their their choices were pretty much you know early Spielberg. Yeah. I want to do a top five that includes all of Spielberg, mm. and I want you to do the same. Okay. Right now. <laughs> I'll go first. Okay. Number one, Jaws. Okay. Number two, Close Encounters. Number three, E.T. Number four, Munich. And number five, catch me if you can. Okay. Um, mm, do I go with my head or my heart here? Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, well, let's just say this. One and two can be very interchangeable depending on the day. Sure. So we'll just, we'll just say number one and number two are Jaws and E.T. We'll, we'll yes. start there. Uh, number three, I'm going to go with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sure. Yeah. Uh, number four, I'm going to go with Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number five, hmm, number five, where am I going to go with number five? I'm looking at my Spielberg collection right now, and I'm trying to determine which would be my number five. And I think, I think it's Close Encounters. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, no, like I said, uh, I think it was on the last episode, too, I... I, yeah, Saving Pride Brian is that's probably my number six. Yeah, I feel I feel <laughs> very good with that list. I I would too. Yeah. Well, man, this was excellent, and I really really appreciate you coming on. Um, 
and we'll definitely have you on at least once a year because oh, i think that's that's wonderful man i appreciate yeah. that thank you um yeah as long as i i hope i can bring something to the table with the discussion and i'm sure Pat patrick's gonna listen to this and just swear at it for two hours and that's fine um <laughs> <laughs> we have that kind of relationship clearly um but that but that's fine um so you know, i appreciate you having me on i'm glad i can you know whack rex wax rhapsodic about spielberg my my uh the guy that uh has influenced me more professionally than just about anybody else so nice thank, thank you so where can people read some of your stuff and oh boy check you out you're you're everywhere you're even on tv these days <laughs> i am on tv these days um uh, well you, you film critic is my home and uh that's where generally i'm doing you know my critic watch pieces and stuff like that there so more feature pieces um, I'm doing awards corresponding for RogerEbert.com. I do box office reports for Movies.com. Uh, you can hear me every Saturday night with uh, Nick DiGilio and Colin Suter on WGN Radio at 30 p.m. Uh, you can see me on WCIU's First Business every Thursday at 5.30 in the morning. Just look for WCIU, the TV First Business in high definition. Uh, <laughs> every Thursday morning where I am do a segment on the movies and uh, the business of the movies. Nice. And where can people follow you on Twitter? And I think you're on Letterboxd, too. I am on Letterboxd. I do. I try to you know, come up with uh, lists uh, that you know take up some time. Always fun. <laughs> Always fun to do lists. Uh, so on Letterboxd, er- both Letterboxd and uh, Twitter, I'm Eric the Movie Man. That's Eric with a K, all one word. Uh, so you can find me both there, and uh, I'm on Facebook too. So you can look, track me on there. I'm not not hard to find. Uh, so if you know anyone from Munich is after me, I'm probably <laughs> dead. Man. Well, for the next episode. We're going to change things up quite a bit because, you know, he doesn't have quite the filmography and it's a little bit lighter. And I'm really excited because we got Frank from Film Junk coming on and uh, one of his favorite movies. And I can't wait to ask him why is Nothing But Trouble. That's okay. That's a three hour. That's a three hour show right there. No, um, we're not reviewing that movie for three hours. Oh, okay. We're actually talking about Alexander Payne. Okay. So that's going to be fun. Like Frank, I thought you were were doing the directorial career of Dan Aykroyd there. (laughs) Very short show. No, that's that. No, 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 no. But I was just saying, like, he loves comedy, and um, he's a huge Alexander Payne fan, but. Uh, one of the first things he ever said on the Film Junk podcast that scared the shit out of me that was Nothing But Trouble is one of his favorite movies. Mm. And I am debating, and I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the plunge and rewatch it before he comes on the show and talk to him about it. Because okay. I haven't seen it since it first came out on videotape. And I've seen worse. I hated it when yeah. I saw it. So I, I can't imagine somebody saying that it's one of their favorite movies. But, hey, I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt because I love him. I think he's a great uh, podcaster and, and critic. So um, we're going to talk some Alexander Payne. I, I'm pretty sure right now we're going to go with Citizen Ruth and About Schmidt. That could change. Um, Patrick one loves, of his road trip movies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, it, it'll <laughs> definitely come up. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. No, I love Alexander Payne. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's great. So it's going to be a great show. Um, 
That'll be going up in a couple weeks right after this episode. So thanks, everybody, so much for listening. Eric, thanks again for being on. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, here's what I want to know. Is there any other human being on Earth that hates fucking horses? Am I the only human on this planet who thinks horses are creepy and gross-looking and they have these weird dead eyes that are totally unexpressive and they're... Oh, it's fucking gross. I hate horses. Because I started to watch War Horse, right? And the whole premise of War Horse is all these people realize that that this horse is a real special horse. He's such a great horse. I mean, look at him. He's the most beautiful, God's most beautiful creature. You know what? He's God's grossest creature. I hate horses and their weird long faces. They look like alien creatures. Like, cats are better than horses, dogs are better than horses, monkeys are better than horses, slow lorises are way better than horses. I couldn't, I had to stop War Horse 40 minutes in because I couldn't accept its basic premise, which is horses are anything other than gross looking. Um, so listeners, email me. Let me know. DC Podcast at DirectorsClub.com. Or, no, DirectorsClubPodcast at gmail.com. So email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And let us know, do you think horses are gross? The answer is yes. They're fucking horse. I really did. But John Williams, he was insistent on being the dude who's like, hey, this horse is beautiful. I better make this music super fucking loud at all times because of how amazing this horse is. Man, I hate horses. Whenever I watch a western and, like, a horse gets shot in the face or whatever, it's my favorite thing. My favorite. Thing. That's why I like the uh, remake of uh, 310 to Yuma, actually, because there are a couple horses. They just, they just get exploded. But it's a good thing. More movie. Like, even any movies that don't involve horses, like Carrie. Like, <laughs> like there was just a scene in Carrie where, after getting all the pig blood, John Travolta just stabs a horse in the face. Like, that'd be great. I love it. I mean, Carrie's one of my favorite movies. Carrie B. I love Carrie even more. There's a scene where a horse gets stabbed in the face. I hate horses. Sorry, war horse. Not for me. Bye. Hi, everyone. This is Regina, Patrick's partner. Um, so I resisted seeing War Horse since it came out um, because I find stories that are centered around animals in dangerous situations to be really upsetting. Um, so something has to be very compelling and highly recommended uh, for me to consider dealing with that level of distress. Um, this week has been kind of a weird twist on that situation because Patrick has just been shit-talking Warhorse like all week. Um, so even though I am still recovering from reading Grant Morrison's Week 3 last summer, um, I agreed to watch the first 40 or so minutes of Warhorse um, before the war kicks in and it's just the horse. Um, so I have to say, I don't know what the hell my partner is talking about. Uh, what I saw was glorious footage of God's most majestic and graceful creature. Uh, John Williams' score is completely appropriate for the feelings that are elicited in my heart when I hear even a faint clip-clopping of hooves on Britain's fertile ground. Papa Xanax, watch War Horse, up to and including the horse's first great triumph over expectations, Turn the movie off immediately and then donate a lot of money to the ASPCA out of sheer guilt for being a human being. Uh, five stars.
Jeff, why don't you give me back season three of The Wire? I uh, I think I lent it to you. And uh, I I misremember. I thought you gave it to me back, but now I look. I'm unpacking all my stuff. Literally all of my belongings now exist inside of this apartment, and part of those belongings that are not present are season three of The Wire. Jim, come on, man. Give me back season three of The Wire. I need it. I need it bad.